Blog Talk Radio. To rise and shine with the Hair Radio Morning Show with Gary Hines. Welcome to the Hair Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. He's the host with the most. Mr. Kerry Hi, and welcome to the all-new Kerry Hines Morning Show on live from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern. It's a great mix of life, culture, hair, music, entrepreneurship, and news. Now, if today's your first time tuning in and you've called our 516 number, thank you. And feel free to press 1 to share your comment or a shout-out. If you're listening through an online link, please watch and enjoy our slideshow. Today's episode can be played back over at stormradio247.com in the afternoon or on our free Salon TV Network app. Big thank yous to our amazing sponsors, like FixYourFeet.com, Rugged Evolution, Stimulating Roots, Plug420.com, and our very own Carapy Hair Products, Salon TV Network, and live Hair Nation Expo events. So grab your cup of coffee, and I'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. I'm Carrie Hines, and I have a very special guest with us today. His name is Dr. Joel Freeman. Now, he is the founder, CEO, and president of the Freeman Institute. Dr. Freeman, I'd like to welcome you to the Hair Radio Morning Show. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you, Carrie. Absolutely. Now, first of all, um, we've got to start at the beginning. Tell everyone what the Freeman Institute is. It's a company I I started uh, back about 21, 22 years ago, and uh, we have eight arenas of expertise, and that ranges from workshops and retreats and keynote addresses to a culture change, reality-based organizational change, and then uh, I do executive success coaching. Uh, I do Black History and Diversity Day presentations, and uh, I have a whole aspect that deals with entrepreneurship and business intelligence and creativity, and then do open registration seminar events for communities, and then also develop the uh, Rosetta Stone Replica Project. Uh, The Rosetta Stone is not the language software company. It's the uh, actual uh, artifact that was used to crack the code to hieroglyphics back in the early 1800s, and the original is in the British Museum. It was uh, made in in Egypt, uh, on the west bank of the Nile. They found it in 1799. Uh, French soldiers did. 
But uh, anyway, it's, I have the world's first and only full-size three-dimensional replica that's available for the general public. And also have my own publishing company and and other projects where we work in work with. So that's kind of gives you uh, pr pretty much a quick overview of of the institute. Sure, and and tell the folks out there where is the institute located, and uh, we'll take it from there in terms of what it's all about. Sure, it's in uh, Maryland, not far from Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. And so I want to just let everybody know, as you were kind enough to just kind of give us a quick uh, overview of the Freeman Institute, but when I looked at your website at um, freemaninstitute.com, I saw quite a bit of information, um, so many different things that really kind of piqued my interest, and I was just blown away, to be quite frank with you, Dr. Freeman. Uh, one of the things that uh, we'll get into, there's so many different aspects, like I said, that we're going to get into. But the one of the one of my favorite parts that I uncovered on your site, of course, um, like some of the, you know, on a lighter side, some of the quotes that you have there are just fantastic. And um, so, you know, I just wanted to let you know that I'm someone who gravitates oh, towards you. quotes and things of that nature. So I, when I saw and I look at your uh, kind of your long list of items that you have on your site, and I see that you cover kind of everything, you really do, and you outline it there, you put it there. It's a lot of work that has gone into this. You have some wonderful things that you're doing, uh, obviously in the way of education, and you have, uh, you know, just uh, some great things uh, historical of historical content, um, you know, reference. And then my other part. Um, the other part of this that I absolutely love um, is that you have a huge collection so of uh, artifacts and things that um, you know that document the African American experience or the African experience. I guess that if you were on, on some level, so you know we want to walk. We want you to walk us through just about everything. So, um, and then I'm going to end with the entrepreneurship because that's another part of this that fits into a great deal of uh, where we are today at uh, the Hair Radio Morning Show and what we talk about quite often. So I've got a whole thing on that uh, to kind of cover with you. So let's talk about um, this particular, um, before we even get into Annie Malone, which we will definitely get into, Let's talk about the, I think I saw something that you had written, a documentary, if you will, on a white man's journey into uh, or through black, uh, black America, I think it was. Why don't you tell the folks about this and how all this came to be, uh, why this came to be, and, and how you got involved? Because I understand that you're from Canada, is that correct? That's correct. Um, okay. Yeah, what so happened is... I ended up leaving home when I was 17. I come from a little town of uh, Three Hills, Alberta, Canada, and I left home at 17, just started hitchhiking all around North America, long-haired wow. hippie, dope-smoking fool, and just uh, traveled probably five, 6,000 miles on my thumb uh, pretty much wow. all around uh, North America. And then I had um, uh, an experience that actually changed my life. It, that really uh, caused me to, um, uh, to 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 revisit, you know, what my purpose was and what my goals were. I signed up for Bible school the next day, and uh, how became, old were you, if I may ask, at that point? <laughs> I was. As you uh, don't actually, mind. 
I was actually about 17. Really? I was, I was 19 years of age. I'm sorry, 19 at that wow. point. Wow. Okay. And then I ended up going to uh, school. I became a pastor. I became chaplain for the Bullets, the Wizards, and the NBA. Wow. Uh, one of the first chaplains in the history of the NBA. And I started that in 1978-79 season. And um, So what are the chaplain, for those of us who don't know, uh, obviously we know what a chaplain uh, does in general, but what 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 did chaplain for the NBA do exactly? Like how does how does all that work? Well, I'm actually writing a book about it right now called Finding the Open Man, subtitled mm. the uh, subtitled the Surprising Benefits of Unselfishness, and uh, basically the whole idea behind being a chaplain is to be a confidant, a friend, someone without any hidden agenda someone who uh, keeps everything in absolute confidence and uh, is just there for the guys, is not there to take but to give. And it's such a rare situation for uh, for so many NBA players because most people have a, have a hidden and sometimes not so hidden agenda. And so sometimes they don't even know for a year to two years what their real agenda is for some people that want to get close to them, either through their kids, wow. their fa- fa- wife or family, parents. They try to get through to the player. And so uh, uh, really I, I didn't uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. And so uh, I just uh, – but I just knew I could, I could love these guys unconditionally and I could uh, uh, be a listening ear. I didn't always have the right thing to say perhaps, but I could at least listen. And I think that uh, over 20 seasons, I mean, there are six coaching changes, and generally speaking, a new coach brings in uh, his or her new people, you know, depending on the WNBA or NBA or whatever. They just clear the deck and start with their own people. And uh, to have survived six coaching changes, I I still shake my head. It's remarkable to me that that even happened. But it was a, a great ride. Got to know a lot of players and their families, and um, that, in a nutshell, is is what it's all about. So you probably uh, well. Well, I also understand that uh, you used to get a lot of questions from these guys, and that's kind of what also helped to prompt you and and kind of push you forward with uh, you know getting uh, to have a deeper understanding. So, uh, what kind of questions did they pepper you with? Well, what happened is, is uh, of course, you can imagine when I was 25 years of age when this happened, and uh, when my first year, my first season, and and I, <clears throat> I've always looked rather young, and uh, you can imagine I probably looked about 16 or 17 years of age when I was 25, <laughs> and uh-huh. so uh, they're they're looking at each other and saying, "You mean we're supposed to spill our guts to that guy? You got to be kidding me!" <laughs> and so um, it was uh, earning their respect. But I think that they were testing the seams of my soul and trying to, and, and the sincerity of my heart by asking questions. And it's probably unconscious. I don't think it was a conscious uh, uh, grilling or anything like that. But over time, they right. began to ask questions like, you know, what did Jesus look like? Um, what part did people of African descent have to play in biblical and extra-biblical history? Um, uh, just questions like that that I, I found that I, I did not have the responses to. Heck, I didn't even know what questions to ask. And so uh, what happened is that little by little, it forced me to start researching 
so that I could have some type of a credible response to them. Then you fast forward. That was my first inkling, uh, uh, real inkling, that, uh, that I needed to grow and expand. I never was interested in history in school, but uh, that, that got me started. Then you fast forward to about 95, 1995, I met a gentleman by the name of Don Griffin. He was the senior HR manager for a company, and uh, by that time in 93, I had stopped pastoring and decided to take my pastor's heart into the business world, so I launched my own company called the Freeman Institute. And uh, at that point, uh, I was at his job, you know, working uh, doing some some uh, events for his senior leadership team, and uh, between sessions, Don began to share with me his journey as a, as an African American male uh, growing up, and some of the latest revelations and understandings he had about himself and about history, and it fascinated me. So uh, I began to study some of the things that he was saying. Began to research. I had that much respect for him. And uh, I remember going to the the, the um, library time and time again. Uh, there's no internet at the time, and um, I just would get these what we used to call VHSs or videos. <laughs> right, <laughs> remember video. those. And so uh, I'd bring home a, a video, let's say a series called um, Africa: A Voyage of Discovery by Basil Davidson. Uh, is a BBC series. Uh, a man from Great Britain, and then I'd uh, pick up the uh, Eyes on the Prize, Part One, Part Two, uh, the Promised Land, about the move from the South to the, especially the Chicago Land area, and uh, I just began to read books, and and then I bumped into Ivan Van Sertima, and uh, I remember calling him up. I, someone gave me his home phone number. I called him up, and I said. Uh, uh, you don't know me, and I barely know you, but uh, I would like to get to know you. And what happened is that he began to share things with me, and then he, he got my address. The next thing I knew, three weeks later, I got a big, huge box of his books that he edited and wrote. And then I called him back and asked him if I could, if he would become my historical guide, my main historical guide. And we spent hours on the phone together where I'd read a book, and I'd redline it, I'd ask all kinds of questions, and he let me ask any off-the-wall question that was ricocheting around my little pea brain. It was just a fascinating experience. Wow. We had a great time talking. He's passed away now since uh, 19, uh, 20, 2000, 2009. And um, I miss him, you know, on, on many levels, but especially just uh, hanging out with him on the phone, just talking with him about various things, bouncing ideas around. So uh, wow. that kind of was the, the genesis to, um, and then I met a gentleman by the name of, of Mark Mitchell, who has a huge black history collection, and Mark and I began to talk, and I just saw the power of his collection, uh, the, just the impact it had. It is a transcendent quality, transcending race and gender and generation and religion, uh, class. I mean, just fascinating. And so I began to, uh, he became a mentor of mine, and I, I began to develop my own collection, which is now well over 3,000 pieces. Uh, the oldest piece dates back to 1553. I've been able to do exhibits at the United Nations twice, and plus they've used some of my pieces and information on international exhibit that's going around the world right now. Uh, Clinton Presidential Library have done things in conjunction with the White House communication staff. 
uh, also uh, Secret Service, four years in a row, FBI, just fascinating uh, stuff that wow. emerged as a result of this collection. It's, it's opened up doors, and I find that especially when I'm speaking about diversity or black history, um, it opens up the minds and hearts to receive what I have to share because when people see 20, 30, 40 pieces uh, of my collection and exhibit before I speak, you know, now they're intrigued. What's this? What? Why does? What's this white guy all about? What's his? What's his deal? You know, what, what's what's motivating him? And that's the cartoon bubble above everybody's head. And so I'm able to respond uh, best I can to that. In fact, I have a website called White Man's Story. Dot com that white white man's no apostrophe on the s man's but white man's story dot com and that's my uh, online response to that question that people have yeah. about uh, you know what motivated me to get involved. Well, I also want to talk a little bit more about this amazing collection that everybody is talking about, of course, uh, that you indicated you know, over three thousand pieces. Um, I think I saw in your video or somewhere where it even had like uh, the shackles, if you will, uh, uh, for like uh, that some of the, the, the slaves may have, um, you know, worn or what have you, um, in addition to so many other different things. What are some of the other standout items that are included in the collection? And, and uh, I understand that it is online to some degree. Yes, blackhistorycollection.com gives kind of a, a brief overview of some of the pieces, but uh, and it's blackhistorycollection.com, singular. And, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, one pair of uh, shackles that I received, I was over in, in Ghana at the uh, Slave Coast Castle, and um, I was talking with a gentleman there. His name was C Stephen Donica. And uh, I began to share with him a little bit about, uh, you know, the film that I had co-created with Don Griffin and the book and uh, some other things in my collection. And then uh, I said, how would it, would it be possible for me to get a, uh, a pair of shackles, a set of shackles from here, from Africa? And he says, I don't know, but I'll find out. And he brought everything before the village el elders there, and uh, they voted unanimously to donate a set to me which he uh, he sent to me and I, wow. I and I just blown away that they uh, were that kind and because uh, I'm I'm sure it's not an unlimited number of shekels they have available and uh for them to do that uh, I I'm just uh, I just feel so respected by these indivi the individuals who voted on this and of course also Stephen Danica and so um the other pieces I have what I've tried to do Carry is to develop uh, kind of a more of a global picture because I find that here in America and uh, in some parts of, of Canada also there's this intractable uh, black-white uh, situation where it's very hard to understand to cross the that, that uh, no man's land or so, so to speak between the two races and so I've tried to bring more of an international view. And because I, I, I really think that uh, once people begin to realize that there was there were things going on in in uh, in, in South America, in fact uh, there's well over three million that uh, right now that speak 
Spanish and Portuguese, people of African descent in South Africa. And many people don't can't imagine that and, and, and cannot understand it. But it, it just is, I have documents going back to uh, 1553 from Peru, from uh, Ecuador, from Argentina. Some of them are written in Old Spanish. Uh, so that even if someone knows Spanish today, they cannot even read these other documents. You have to have a specialized understanding about the old Spanish Spanish script. And these are all uh, slave documents. Uh, I've got uh, an 11-page document from a hospital where slaves were, uh, if they got sick, that's where they went, uh, St. Bartholomew, uh, just outside of Lima, Peru. And um, it's just an astonishing thing. And then also I have... What I've tried to do with the collection is I've not tr- tried not to spend so much time documenting the horrific nature of of the slave trade and all the rest of it, even though that's a part of the picture and is a necessary part of the picture. What I've tried to do is to showcase the inventiveness uh, of it uh, uh, and the creativity of people who are uh, have been under the boot of slavery and the trade. And uh, uh, you know, and what have you found Jim Crow for the most laws. part? Right. Well, what I've discovered is I, I developed a metaphor that uh, is not new, but I've applied it to this situation. It's called "Blades of Grass in a Concrete Jungle." I commissioned a 90-second uh, animated video that people can see on YouTube: uh, "Blades of Grass in a Concrete Jungle," and it. Uh, what it basically is, is the, the, the concrete is a metaphor for all the horrific things that have happened, ranging from lynching, the black code laws, and, uh, and just uh, the depression where blacks were hired last and fired first, and just so many issues that are, it's, it's impossible to exaggerate the horrific nature uh, that, uh, what people endured. But then we talk about the blades of grass who came up through, cracked through, uh, and sometimes exploded through the concrete. So uh, the thicker the concrete, the more inspirational the story. So by using this metaphor, it gives permission to talk about the horrific nature without it being a downer. Because then, as I mentioned, the thicker the concrete, the more inspirational the story. Once we begin to understand how terrible it was, and then we see the accomplishments of, the, of individuals in spite of how terrible it was, my goodness, uh, I, to myself, I say, you know, uh, man, I think I've got problems. <laughs> you know, I mean, here's, right. an, here's right. an example of somebody who had everything stacked against them, and they still uh, made something of their lives and an inspiration to their families. I mean, we all have concrete internally. Uh, stuff like, you know, hey, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I can't make it, I'm a fraud. Uh, you know, if people really knew what I was all about. That's the, that's the stuff that echoes in the minds and the hearts of just about every human being. And at one point or another, that can actually rob them of their purpose and their potential. Right. And so that we all have that internal concrete. I'm too short, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm too tall, I'm too this, I'm too that. My ears are too big, my ears are too small, my hair is not enough. You know, all that kind of stuff that, that gurgles around. But then you add to it the systemic issues in a culture that provide external concrete that, that actually uh, can uh, can become so uh, terrible and, and, and so demanding of a person's attention that it can actually cripple them and... and uh, and come rolling over them and just say, well, I, I guess I'm nothing. 
I might as well commit suicide. I might as well do something harmful to myself so that I, I sabotage my own success. But here are people that came up through it in spite of it. And that, to me, is I just shake my head. And every time I see pieces from uh, Annie Malone and uh, Madam C.J. Walker and uh, Frederick Douglass and Toussaint Louverture and uh, other individuals, Marcus Garvey, I mean, the list goes on and on and on of individuals. Pearl Bailey, um, it just is astonishing to me what these individuals accomplished. And so what I've tried to do is develop a, a touchstone, if you will. For instance, like Pearl Bailey, I have the actual check that she was paid for her part in Porgy and Bess. And, uh, really? Someone, I'm not going to tell you how much it was because someone might say, how much was that? I'm going to say you have yeah, to go to blackhistorycollection.com <laughs> and uh, do a search for Pearl Bailey, and you'll find out how much she was paid for her part in the movie that came out in the early 50s. And so it, wow. it just is amazing when you think of what people like her accomplish. I have Ethel Waters, her contract, mm-hmm. her book, His Eyes on the Sparrow. It was a smash bestseller. And, um, and I have the actual contract signed by her and her uh, co-author, the one who, uh, the ghostwriter, not the ghostwriter, because he, he was declared that he, he wrote the book, but co-author with her, uh, Charles Samuels. And then I have other items in here. Well, Dr. Uh, Freeman, is it, is it, was it hard to kind of gather these items? Um, how do you find these items? I mean, is it, <laughs> is it easier nowadays because of the Internet, I guess I should ask? It's actually very difficult. If someone were to b- embark upon a collection like this right, right now. Right, if I were to start a collection today, uh, I don't think I would be able be to do it. It would be virtually impossible, and I'm not kidding. It, it is, wow. I know what's out, what's out there and what's not out there, and it is uh, – it, the stuff that you get now, just reproductions, and there's a lot of fakes, and uh, it's very hard. For instance, I have, a, I have an original letter, handwritten letter by Frederick Douglass. Uh, it's it's wow. almost priceless because where could you find one? You know, someone might say, "Well, I've got everything." No, you don't. You don't have a handwritten letter by Frederick Douglass. You no, know? And, that's, and, that's and to huge. Someone like an Oprah or a, you know, you name the names mm-hmm. uh, out there of individuals that would be interested. I mean, it just it, you, if they went out to look for it, they they couldn't find some items that that I've been able to bring together. Wow. Wow. Well, I have to say, let me just remind everybody and kind of bring everybody up to where we are. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. Now, today's guest is Dr. Joel Freeman, and he is the founder, CEO, and president of the Freeman Institute uh, in Maryland. And I'm so, I think um, we've been kind of following along and just thoroughly impressed with the amount of information that you have. You are truly a historian in every sense of the word, um, and an entrepreneur, and you just uh, you just cover everything. Really, I don't think I've seen anybody in a long time like this. Who I just um, we're all blown away with this kind of information, this knowledge, and the willingness that you share, uh, just uh, putting it out there, and um, it's it's quite remarkable. So um, I'm kind of turn to, um, well, you know what, I I do want to talk a little bit about um, Annie Malone and some of the other folks that you write about. And I know we kind of glossed over the book a a bit that you, uh, that you wrote with the, uh, with the gentleman. 
uh, Don Griffith, Don Griffin, I believe. Don Griffin, yes. So, yeah, so I want you to talk about the book specifically. Tell the folks a little bit more. Is it still, are we able to get a copy of this book? Yes, it can be gotten online on Amazon or any, anywhere else. And, um, or they can contact me after the program or something like that, and I'd be happy to sign a copy for them and send it to them. Sure. Um, right. But it's, now it's called it, the Return to Glory. I just want to make sure that yes, that's clear, it, Return to Glory. Subtitled, subtitled, The Powerful Stirring of the Black Man. And uh, the first half is uh, all about the historical content, and that's the, the half that Don wrote. The second half has to do with the mental, emotional, spiritual roadmap to wholeness. And in that, la- that last part, uh, I, I detail how a person can walk through the grieving process. Uh, when, uh, because I remember when I was interviewing people for the book, uh-huh. especially because the book is targeting especially young men, ages about 12 to about 27. And uh, when, while we were researching this, we had people tell us, you're crazy. You know, wh- why would you want to write a book? Because if you want to hide something from young African-American men, you just put it in a book, right? That's what they're telling us. Oh, and they said, you're, yeah. you're wasting your time. You've got to use more visual, music, whatever, other, other means and methodologies to reach your target audience. But we, we forwarded, we kept on going with it, and... Uh, I'll Which is a horrible stereotype, all in it, you know, unto it, itself. It is absolutely, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Yeah. But that's the that was the messaging we we were right. message we were getting from people we were interviewing for the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So anyway, what happened is um, the second half deals with the mental, emotional, spiritual roadmap. And so what I what I did is, um, you can imagine on a suspicion scale from somewhat to to extremely suspicious, we're banging on the extremely suspicious end of the scale. When I'm interviewing uh, someone, let's say, for the book, and they're saying, you know, why are you writing this book, and who are you, and what are you all about? And so um, uh, what I did is I asked a question, a question that changed the tone of every single interview and brought some of us from 40, some interviews from 45 minutes to sometimes four, six, maybe even eight hours, some dear friendships emerging. And here's the question that changed the tone of every single interview. Do you remember the moment when you realized that because of the color of your skin that the rules were somehow different for you? Now, by asking that question, to have a 65-year-old man pause, look out the window, and then look back at me, and then tell me with brilliant clarity what happened when he was five or six years of age, knowing what the, remembering the weather, what he was wearing, his mother's response when he told her about it, and just, uh, my goodness, it, it uh, really, uh, that question changed the tone, because I began to then see that there was a whole grieving process. After that moment, whether it's five or six or seven or eight or 10 or 12 or 19 or 20 years of age, uh, d- depending on the situation, to then go from that moment to, the, to what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote uh, when she was still alive. She wrote a book about the grieving process. And grieving, uh, we've all lost loved ones or lost a dream, but grieving is all about loss. And so uh, the loss that I began to identify, because uh, my Ph.D. work is in psychology, and I think in that direction, uh, began to see that the loss had to do with it was the loss of innocence, that all of a sudden a young kid, a young boy, young girl, 
a young individual suddenly has it's like the scales have been taken off it's like it's like the the blinders have been taken off and they now can see wow they hate me just because of the color of my skin you got to be kidding me and then the grieving process ranging from denial to uh to depression to uh just all the different aspects that that go with the whole grieving process and in the book i spend a chapter on each layer, each aspect of the grieving process. And of course, it isn't a neat, uh, nice and tidy, well, I'm moving from one part to the next, and never to be revisited, but a person could be in, in what whatever acceptance means, you know, because who knows what that means. A person could be in acceptance at 4.30 in the afternoon and be back at square one at 7 o'clock that night, and uh, working through the whole process again. So that began to really unlock to me uh, the doorway, the, under, the gateway to understanding uh, what humans go through in a situation like this. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it, just, it just had an astonishing impact on me. Well, you know something, Dr. Freeman, I have to ask you, and I think this is about as good a time as any, uh, when you see all of the things that are happening uh, in the country uh, in these current times, uh, and you uh, being uh, a person of faith and education and all the above, and uh, what uh, what can you say? And what how do you how do you how do you how do you I don't even know how do you explain it? What are your thoughts on it? I'm just curious. Well, I think that um, humans are humans wherever we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, if you're a Korean in Japan you're going to be experiencing uh some some just some crazy situations uh if you are a um uh let's say a gypsy in hungary or in in sweden uh you're you're going to be experiencing situations that are are uh, very very difficult and if you're in from one tribal system or another tribal system uh, warring against another tribal system in africa very similar dynamics same color of skin in all uh, in in these accounts, uh, except Korean and Jap- Japanese might have just a variation of the color of skin, but um, and also in Mexico, if you're darker skin or lighter skin color, uh, the darker skinned uh, individuals deal with incredible uh, discrimination. In Italy, if you're from North Italy versus South Italy, in Great Britain, uh, just the sound of your speech. If you're from Yorkshire or, or Scotland. Uh, and you're talking with someone who is from uh, uh, London, uh, you know, from a certain part of London, there, there's immediate, the mo- moment the person opens their mouth, there's an immediate class system that emerges. My point being is that, um, for me, uh, I think that wherever we go, there's going to be this kind of situation. And I and I think it's important for us to understand the history so that we never repeat it you know, personally. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, I was down at Los Alamos National Laboratory uh, some years back, about seven, eight, maybe ten years ago now, and I was uh, doing their speaking at their um, uh, Martin Luther King event, and uh, I talked about the moment, and I talked about the grieving process, and there was a gentleman there who was very high up at Los Alamos National Laboratory at the time, a man of African descent. He came up to me afterwards and began to share with me his story a little bit. And then 
after he shared with me a story, uh, he said, you know, he says, when I experienced the moment when I realized because of the color of my skin that the rules were somehow different for me, he said, it was like a, a hurricane force wind came against me. And he was no more than about six, seven years of age. And he said, uh, in fact, by the way, when you think about hurricane, a hurricane, it, it takes about, uh, what is it, 75 miles per hour for a wind right. to get a name. And, and he said that uh, what happened is that when that, he said, yeah, I learned as a young man how to lean into the wind. I learned how to have a sense of humor in the midst of the wind. I learned, it was a dark sense of humor, but I had a sense of humor. Right. I learned how to be successful in spite of the wind. I learned how to have relationships with people in spite of the wind, but I knew the wind was there. And he says later on, he says, I, I rose very pretty high in my in the ranks. I got a job in Japan. He said, I went to Japan and uh, got a tour there. And he said, the moment I got off the airplane, he says, wouldn't you know it, the wind stopped. And remember what I said about the Korean and Japanese. If you're Korean, the wind is at about 120 miles per hour for you. But as an African, a man of African descent, he said the wind has stopped for him. About three, four weeks later, there were uh, a delegation from D.C. came to visit. And he said they, they uh, met at a restaurant. And he said within the first five minutes, he said, at the, at the restaurant, he says, I felt the wind pick up again. It was just crazy and strange. Then he looked at me. He's a no BS kind of guy. He looked at me straight in the eye and as serious as a heart attack. He said, for some reason, I don't feel any wind coming from you. Now, Carrie, I don't know. It just it, it just struck me so incredibly hard what he said to me. And I thought, to, I got, got in the car. I mean, we're in, in uh, you know, I, I had to get to Albuquerque to get on the plane, to come back to Baltimore. A couple of times I had to pull over because I was crying so much because it meant so much to me. And I just, at that point, you know, I began to pray, I began to talk to God. I said, I never want to be a person who sponsors the wind for my wife, for my kids, for my next-door neighbors, people at church, uh, people uh, wherever I go, and be in cross-cultural situations. I don't want to be a sponsor of the wind. And not if, but when I do sponsor the wind, I just want to be man enough to go to that person, whoever it might be, and ask for forgiveness and apologize and and uh, and repair as best as I can. Now, I think that that is a metaphor, if you will, for how things can change. It's one by one, people reaching out and in spite of the pain. Uh, Henry Nowen wrote a book called The Wounded Healer, and I think that's what it's all about, that uh, in the midst, in spite of our wounds, in spite of the history that we all seek to understand before seeking to be understood. That's what uh, Augustine said in the 4th century. Wow. Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Those are words worth embroidering. But I love what's that. cool about that statement is that it doesn't preclude the need to be understood, but it's all about understanding. And I think if every one of us, within the sound of my voice, myself included, if every one of us over the next 30 days said, I am going to seek to understand before seeking to be understood with our spouses, with our kids, with our next-door neighbors, everybody, mm-hmm. and just I, I think it could, ha- it, it could have a profound impact on, our, uh, on, on, how, on the quality of our lives, on our experiences. 
and the impact on our work experience, everything that we can imagine. So that's, wow. that's what I think it needs to happen. And so every pore in my, every bone, every tissue in my body, every cell in my body, I want to be committed to that. I want to be committed to impacting other people, like the hot coal principle. The old days, you had the hibachi grill, and you put right. the, the briquettes in there, and there's only one or two that are hot, and then, the, and then you kind of bring the other the other ones that are cold, you bring them up next to the hot ones, and you hope they wow. catch fire. And yeah. so uh, I just think if we can get just some people that are hot coal, uh-huh. briquette coals, and with this message, and little by little, you know, the whole purpose behind the collection. I don't, you know, I don't, I hold things lightly. You know, that collection, the whole purpose of the collection is to help create an opening in the hearts for people to hear this message. And wow. my book, the books I write, you know, everything is all designed to help open up doors and hearts, minds to these kinds of things, to get out of small mindedness, to kind of move. We can't deny the pain, but it's kind of like a ratchet wrench. You know, a lot of people view the click, 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 you know, the backwards movement. Right, right. Just as that, a backwards movement, backwards movement. But actually, when you think about the purpose of the ratchet wrench to un- to loosen a bolt or tighten a bolt, when you do the click, 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 that's an important part of the whole purpose of the ratchet wrench. What's my point? The point is, is I think sometimes we just need to take a step back, take a look at our pain, click, 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 and when it's uncomfortable, turn the music off, turn the, outs- the external uh, stimulation off, and just confront the pain. And we might have to do it in counseling. We might have to do it reading books. We might have to do it in prayer. Uh, in a lot, a lot of different ways we deal with the pain, but we all have to do that click, 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 and take the step back. But really, that step back is not a backward step. It's a forward step because now we're ready to, uh, to confront the issues in our lives, to, to deal with people out of respect, mutual respect. It's not me trying to be black or someone try, else trying to be white. It's just saying, hey, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm not, I'm not going to, to diss my own people. I'm not going to tear my own race down. I'm just going to be who I am. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow you to be who you are when you come in that five-foot zone around me. And so that's what it's all about, I think. Wow. Well, I, I think you put it eloquently, I have to say. Uh, let's talk about just turning a little bit over towards the entrepreneurial part of things. And I love how you really, I have to say, I, I kind of was, I read a little bit closely about some of the items uh, in terms of you helping corporations in, and, and helping folks in terms of diversity and all kinds of different things and customer service and just teaching and being there to to help guide folks. I was just quite impressed with all of that, uh, Dr. Freeman. So I want to kind of just talk for a moment, and maybe we need to start off by recognizing uh, the impact of an Annie Malone, of uh, C.J. Walker, um, and then kind of talk about um, entrepreneurship in just in general terms. And, and, um, and then I have something I want to mention to you, but um, why don't we start there? Uh, why is it so important? Um, and it seems like all these things are connected when I think about, uh, you know, the Freeman Institute. Uh, it seems like all of these things that you do, there is a, there is a, a theme, there is a, a purpose for all of these different aspects that you tackle. You do a lot and you say a lot. And uh, there's a reason, I believe. Um, but I'd like for you to talk to that a little bit 
you know, about the entrepreneurship uh, and Annie Malone and all of that. Um, why did you decide to include Annie Malone uh, as part of your wonderful uh, site and information? Well, well Carrie, you are right. Um, there's no more than two degrees of separation between any two things that I'm involved mm-hmm. with. In fact, uh, what I did is I, and I think it's important for everyone to do this, but I figured every every major corporation or organization, faith-based, uh, non-profit, uh, for-profit, whatever, most every successful organization has a, a vision statement, mission statement, core values, code of conduct. Right. And uh, I figure, why not? Why not everybody else? Why not individuals develop that? And so. What I've done is I developed my own vision statement, my own mission statement, my own core values, and I de- detail that in uh, the the book, uh, the workbook called "If Nobody Loves You, Create the Demand." It's a book about entrepreneurship, uh, about taking taking an idea to the marketplace. It's a book about yeah. discerning the difference between a viable business dream and a nightmare as quickly as possible, and it's also developed so that. Uh, uh, an organization could could create a, a uh, an entrepreneur club so that people can learn how to deal with objections and learn how to deal with rejection because if people can deal with those two things especially learning it young in life they can be successful in whatever they do objections and rejection and so um i think that uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship see one of the things that i i i want to do is is help uh, community-based organizations and faith-based organizations establish galleries, black history galleries in a community. And I think that a gallery can become, in fact, if someone goes to blackhistorygallery.com, blackhistorygallery.com, they can learn more about this model. Because I think the, the a black history gallery can become like a town well for a community where people can learn about uh, morals and values and uh, just uh, entrepreneurship and, and so many different aspects of what it means to return to glory. And uh, and so then what happens is that as a person learns about entrepreneurship, in fact, I, I think especially with, let's say, an organization wanting to mentor youth, you know, if you come at a young person with the whole idea of morals and values, they're going to be gone off, gone on New York 2nd. But if you come at them with the idea of how can we connect now with later, you know, what do you do? What do you want to? Where do you want to be down the road five, ten years from now? And what are you doing now that will connect with five to ten years from now? And uh, you know, if you're if what you're doing now doesn't connect with five to ten years from now, then we need to revisit what you're doing now, <laughs> and we can do that in a very positive way, and begin to understand that the future is is a connection of of uh, the eternal now, you know, the moments, these moments that we connect together that become the future. And so I think it's important to bring a, a group of young people together, let's say, and say, let's mm-hmm. let's let's have an entrepreneur club. And um, by the way, let's develop an entrepreneurial uh, business together. And I developed a whole magazine project around that that's going crazy around the country right now. And... Uh, and let's develop a, a project so that you can learn how to deal with objections and rejection. And then you can learn how to uh, shake a hand uh, firmly while you're looking squarely in someone's eyes. 
You can learn how to dress in a way, in a manner that's going to be one less speed bump for someone to go over to get to you as a person. Uh, we're going to learn how to uh, just the way we communicate, uh, what we say, how we say it, when we say it, time, tone, tact. We're, we're going to look at all these different aspects. We look at your values, your morals, your character. But you see, all this stuff gets slipped in through the side door, and mm. it. It's uh, along the way, all this stuff begins to int- becomes introduced because, you know, if you want to be successful, if you want to make more money, if you want to be a person that has a greater purpose in life and attracts people to you, your counsel is in demand, uh, you have to start looking at these other areas. But if you lead with that foot, the other area foot, it's going to drive them away. But if you lead with the foot... Uh, you know, of of success in entrepreneurship because we're all either going to be an employer or an employee. And I, I prefer to train up employers, people with an entrepreneurial mindset that can end up hiring 100, 1,000, 10,000 people down the road exactly. and provide jobs for families. And that's the kind of mindset I like to prepare people for and um, and so that they're almost not content for anything else but that. <laughs> exactly. Well, I love that. I really do. And that makes a lot of sense to, to me. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I see that you have the video there. I didn't get a chance to uh, discover that before we uh, you know, began to chat today. But I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, – Madam C.J. Walker items that you have, uh, and I believe they're part of your collection, or, or tell us a little bit about that and how did you, you know, we'll turn to the hair part of it. Okay. How did you, yeah, how did you, how did you get that and, and talk a little bit about that? And I'm looking at your video, but I'm not, I don't have the sound of, so, you know, walk okay. us for a little bit of, of what all of that is about. Well, Madam C.J. Walker, most everyone has heard of her. Uh, and because when, when I'm in a crowd, let's say a thousand people, and I ask how many here of Madam C.J. Walker, and hands go up everywhere. She's an incredible person. She fought against lynching. She she gave money for uh, fighting against lynching. She went to Washington D.C. to help uh, create legislation against lynching. Uh, she was a woman of great character who helped to develop um, entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs. And uh, and yet, the question I generally have in a situation like that is, okay, what well did she draw her water from? Who, right. What shoulders did she stand on to become who she was? And so uh, I, I bumped into Annie Malone. And hardly in that same crowd of 1,000 people, you might have 99% Two. of the folks raising their hand. <laughs> About Annie exactly. Malone, about uh, Madam C.J. Walker, uh, but then you might right, have three or four no people right, exactly. saying they know who Annie Malone is. <laughs> right. So uh, I figured I'm going to make it part of my life mission is to help uh, in, help people know about who Annie Malone is. Uh, yes. Because she no, was. Yes. Go ahead. Go right ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. She was. Oh no. Uh, she was an, an incredible person. Uh, she was actually um, she trained up over seventy five thousand women entrepreneurs. Uh, she she trained Madam C J Walker in to in, in nineteen oh five, and Madam C J Walker became a a Poro agent because that was the name of her college Poro College. She built this beautiful building in St Louis Missouri, uh, four stories high. It looks. Uh, I, have a, I have an original book that people can get off Amazon if they go to parocollege.com. 
And Paro College, it's just very simple. The word, first word is four letters. Paro, P as in Paul, O as in Ocean, R as in Ralph, O as in Ocean, Paro, like P-O-R-O, college.com. And uh, uh, they'll see this building. And then they'll also see a booklet that uh, she she published back in 1926. And a part of my Black History Collection, yeah, I have an original one of those 1926 booklets. There's very few of them around. And when you, when you open up the booklet, the first thing you start looking at is how incredible this building is. It's like it's straight. Uh, if I just showed you a picture of uh, some of the rooms, you would swear it's, it's out of Wall Street in New York. And, uh, and this particular uh, building was uh, a building where she trained up, uh, as I mentioned, uh, over 75,000 women entrepreneurs uh, who she gave cash awards to for saving accounts or home purchases. She gave a diamond ring to them after, after five years of service. Her, her philanthropy toward them and toward others was legendary. Um, and and uh, this building is, is just, it's just an incredible place that she created for this. She owned a whole city block in Chicago. She paid, imagine this, 1926 alone, she paid over $40,000 in taxes. Just think about that. Amazing. One of the first Amazing. people in the entire state of Missouri to own a Rolls Royce. And, well, uh, now, so who was actually the very first self-made female African-American millionaire? Was well, it I, Annie Malone or was it, I mean, not that it, you know, is uh, something we should, you know, compare <laughs> on any level, but I'm just curious because uh, I, I've always grown up thinking it was Madam C.J. Walker with all of her, yeah. you know, things and, and accomplishments. Yeah, from all the, re- the uh, research I've done, uh, if I were a betting man, and I'm not a, a gambling man, but if I were, I'd put I'd, I'd bet the farm that Annie Malone was the first millionaires of African descent, uh, women, female millionaires in the country. And that's and what I'm getting. But why? How on this earth? I try to figure this out as well. How did? Uh, and I love Madam. I love both. And oh, all the things there, there's no comparison. Both are wonderful. Yes. Absolutely. And that's but not even part of the discussion here. Right, exactly. But how on this earth did Madam C.J. Walker take all the things that she learned, which I'm sure was a uh, wonderful tribute to uh, Annie Malone, um, and seems that only America, it seems like we only remember or know of the accomplishments of the student as opposed to the teacher. I think uh, a lot of it, a lot of it had to do... With uh, Annie Malone, uh, what happened is that uh, she ended up getting married mm-hmm. in, uh, I think it was 1924-ish, right around there. And uh, what happened is that after she got married, uh, her her husband, uh, he was not a very good man. And um, mm-hmm. he caused such incredible problems for her. Uh, that um, I just shake my head, uh, and and felt that uh, he should he was due so much more than than uh, and they ended up getting divorced. Let me put it that way. Wow. And and from that point on, what happened is her business became. Uh, she was a very. If you look at her building and everything that she did, mm-hmm. uh, it was incredible, uh, impeccable. Uh, you know, clean. It was. Um, 
orderly. It was, uh, un, uh, I mean, you could see the record system she had. My my point being is that this was an incredible person. But once after the the wedding, um, then what happened is that he began to uh, sabotage everything. Uh. And so, and she never recovered. Then the IRS got involved, and mm. she never recovered from that at all. Here's, here's a college that employed in 1926 175 people with franchise outlets in in North America, South America, Africa, the Philippines. Uh, a wealthy, wealthy woman, and then at the end of her life, she pretty much dies destitute. And all that's left right now wow. is the orphanage, the Annie Malone Orphanage that uh, was um, a facility on Good Avenue. Uh, I don't know if you remember the song Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Yes, yes, yes. He grew up on Good Avenue, right around the corner. And Mm. that's that's where the spelling Johnny Be Good, G-O-O-D-E, in the song, it comes from that Good Avenue. All this time I thought it was just Johnny Be Good, G-O-O-D. Yes, G-O-O-D-E. If you look it up on the Internet, you'll see that's how it's spelled. Wow. And uh, and he later became a beautician under the Poro system. He graduated in 1952 because he, he thought the music thing wasn't going to work. And so he became a beautician. And, of course, his song uh, songs just took off. And, um, uh, you know, he, he never went back to it. But uh, Right, right. Amazing. So, okay, well, that explains a, a great deal for us on that. Because I was I was just curious. I'm really sad to understand that uh, she had that kind of a ending. But you know what? Um, I always like to remind folks, uh, and it always seems to me uh, that it's always those who are incredibly talented and creative, and they always uh, attract a certain kind of the opposite, if you will. I, I don't know. It just it just seems very strange to me. But uh, Anyway, some that's, people make great personal choices and bad business yeah, choices, and other people right. make bad business it's the bad opposite, personal exactly. choices. Exactly, <laughs> good personal choices. Yeah, that's know, amazing. Crazy. Exactly. Well, listen. Thank you so much. This is great, folks. If you've just joined us, we have really been kind of getting a great uh, education, a great understanding um, of so many historical. Um, elements and things that we, you know, we kind of knew a little bit about or we kind of heard about. And some of us have read some things, but not others. Um, So we're so excited to have the gentleman behind the Freeman Institute. He is the founder, CEO, and president, uh, Dr. Joel Freeman, and he's with us today. And uh, this is just I'm still uh, kind of stuck on the 3,000, uh, <laughs> more than 3,000 pieces that you have <laughs> in the Black History Collection. Um, I, I can't wait to come and see that. So um, I'm very, very excited. Um, oh, thank I'm you so much. I'm very excited about it. Sure. So this is just wonderful. Um, and we're going to tell the folks again, um, why don't you do that, Dr. Freeman? Tell the folks how they can reach you how they can find out the items that they really need to focus on, on some of these. I mean, you have quite a bit of uh, information. Well, I think if if people can go to uh, blackhistorycollection.com, blackhistorycollection.com, and then at the very bottom of the page is all of my contact information. <clears throat> and uh, so then I'd be very happy to talk with them if they want to order uh, a book, 
uh, a film version of the book, Return to Glory, the entrepreneurship book, uh, anything at all, uh, or just want to talk, uh, maybe about something in there that they have a collection or a few pieces and they're wondering about it, I'd be very happy to talk with people. And so uh, that's probably the best way, blackhistorycollection.com. Uh, well, uh, we're going to, of course, uh, stay on top of all of this and bring you back, Dr. Freeman. You, we're going to keep, uh, we're, we've got you now. Uh, and there's a whole lot of this that we're going to delve into on a regular basis because uh, this is something that's so critical and important for us to have a greater understanding about. And I feel so honored and lucky right now. I feel so lucky that uh, I've been able to come across your information. Uh, I'm just uh, very grateful. Now, I have to say, uh, you know, just uh, before we close out, I had um, mentioned this at the top of the interview. Uh, I just love your, I love the quotes that you've assembled. I don't know who wrote them, but I just love them. One of them, uh, one of the, you know, and these are just a couple of them that I just said, oh, wow, how great. Uh, Patience is not waiting. It's how you act while you're waiting. That's one. I love that. And uh, I think that says so much. And uh, my other favorite that I seem to just picked up uh, again from looking at, you know, I started at freemaninstitute.com and I saw this and it's like age doesn't always bring wisdom. Sometimes age comes alone. (laughs) I just love that. Uh, That says it all. So I want to just say you are just uh, extraordinary. So uh, you know what you People are. Say I'm, You're extraordinary. I'm an expert in this or that. I'm not an expert. I'm just a student, and so I'll always be a student learning. Wow. Uh, you know, like someone once said that um, you can't you can't learn with your mouth open. You know, you right. just uh, it's just more of a situation. Uh, you know, you just really want to. I'm always someone that I want to just learn, you know, because generally speaking, you aren't learning much when your lips are moving. And so uh, uh, I just well, want to be a person who listens at least twice as much than I than I speak. I Although I, I did a lot more speaking today than, than I, well, that's than I okay. like to do. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I was about to say. It's okay <laughs> when your lips are speaking, when they're educating so many people, countless folks who need to hear what you have to say. So I am so grateful. And, and uh, now, are you on social media? We need to uh, find out. Are, we, are you on social media at all? I'm on uh, Facebook. I've got about 16 pages. In fact, there's a, a page called Black History Collection. It's the only one on Facebook. Got over 10,000 followers on that. And got some very, very cool stuff on that. And then, of course, well, you're my about name. to have 10,001. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's Black History Collection right on the uh, Facebook page. And then, of course, I have my own personal Facebook page, and I'd love to connect with anybody. And then I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, who knows about me and all that kind of stuff that's out there. So we can find you. Okay. Well, I'm going to have you back, as I said, right here on the Hair Radio Morning Show. Well, do you have any closing uh, thoughts? Uh, You've been so uh, kind to just share your your perspective on, on all of this and just someone who uh, has done so much. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts or words of inspiration or encouragement? Well, I do. I think, speaking of the hair and beauty industry, you know, I I just see how uh, Asians have pretty much taken over, and I'm not mad at them. 
I think they just took advantage of a situation that was open and available. I've developed a 10-year plan on how uh, African Americans can take back the uh, uh, the hair care and beauty industry, uh, starting from the top down and the bottom up. And I think Annie Malone figures very uh, much into this. I would love to see this booklet get into every beauty parlor, every uh, beauty salon, every uh, hair, uh, barbershop in the country, and have people learn about Annie Malone. And then I'd like to see uh, the the most senior people in the hair care beauty industry from the old guard companies and the new guard companies come together in the first year, not even deal with business things, just be develop relationship to take a look at the elephants in the room to to, to walk through all of that to deal with that, and then have a united uh, just not a united front necessarily even though that's important but united just be united and to really become good friends and understand how important this is. And then the, in the second year, start developing manufacturing and then distribution. And little by little, I think that there's a whole willing audience built around Annie Malone's story that could be wide open because people will not buy black just for the sake of buying black. They want to buy something that is a good price, it's easily easily available. It is distributed well. Is manufactured well. And um, you know, you, you just check all the boxes off. And then someone will say, "Okay, okay, now I'll buy whatever that product is." If it happens to be black, that's what I'm talking about. Is to create a whole industry that can uh, that can because without the cons- if you if the consumers are in, are, are trained and understand what's going on. I think, and then there's a product and manufacturing and distribution all set up in place to deliver it. Uh, I think that uh, within 10 years, the whole industry can turn around and it can become something that's well within the African-American community. But I think Annie Malone is the key for all of this. Well, I just want to remind the folks, and the book that you're talking about exactly, the title and and how we can get our hands on it. It's Madam... Madam Walker's Role Model. It can be found on Amazon, eBay, but if they go to if someone goes to Poro College, P O R O, Paul Ocean, Ralph Ocean, porocollege.com, they can see how to order it. And uh, I think it's such an important piece of history. You know, uh Carrie, I reached out to the top the leaders in the hair care beauty industry and only found two or three that even knew who Annie Malone was. And I said, exactly. I said you know, that, yeah. that, that this is an important thing for people to learn about her so then they can begin to uh, reanimate her legacy. Well, I'll tell you something. It starts today. Dr. Freeman, I want to thank you again for being our very special guest right here on the Hair Radio Morning Show. Uh, we're going to have you back to kind of, you know, uh, continue this wonderful conversation. I think it was a great start, and you've helped to peel back just a little bit for us. And uh, we've got uh, we've got some work to do. We've got some work to do, so uh, we're going to have you back. Well, listen, I want to thank you again. And, uh, and you, please remain on the line, Dr. Freeman. I'm going to close us out here. And uh, Hey, who's your plug? You don't have one? Then you need us. 
Anything CBD, we can plug you in. Dispensaries, stores, smoke dens, we can plug you in. You need gummies, brownies, oils, we'll tell you where to get it. Any and everything you need, we'll plug you in. Check us out at plug420.com or download the app for free for all your CBD and hemp needs. We'll connect you to the best CBD and hemp businesses in your area. Plug420.com or download the app. Get plugged in. Ladies, do you love a man with a well-groomed and sexy beard? Men, do you suffer from patchiness or irritation and want a fuller beard? Well, let me introduce you to the hottest beard care products on the market. Rugged Evolution features 16 amazing balms, oils, shampoos, and accessories. Our products are sure to meet the demands of all your beard care needs. For more information, go to RuggedEvo.com. That's RuggedEvo.com. And remember, Rugged is the new smooth. You're listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. I'm Carrie Hines. I'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Vincent Ellis White. Now, he is an author of a book called Finding Chris, My Father. I'd like to welcome to the Hair Radio Morning Show, Vincent. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate you for having me. Yes. And, well, first of all, and that's Vincent Ellis White. I want to make sure that's clear. Now, you are the author of this book, and and I think it has such a very interesting subject matter that it deals with. Uh, Tell us about Finding Chris, My Father. What is it all about? Okay, well, the book Finding Chris, My Father, is a memoir that I wrote um, wrote and published myself, and it's about my uh, very intriguing story growing up uh, dealing with fatherlessness. And um, to give you a quick synopsis of it, um, I grew up with a father that was a habitual offender, so he was in and out of jail, um, and there was, he was definitely in more times than he was out. So I was raised... You know, like a lot of our other young uh, African-American males, I was raised with just my mother in a single-parent, single-income um, home. And she used to take me to visit him two to three times a week at the prison, um, but she told me he was in school. And so I was a young kid. So, you know, when you're a young kid, you listen to your parents, and everything they say is golden. So, you know, I believe uh, whatever she was telling me, she could have told me he was a unicorn. I probably would have, would have believed it. But um, <laughs> right. I, I, I thought he was in, I thought he was in school. And um, you know, my my friends that read the book, they said, "How would you not know he's in jail?" And I said, "Well, you know, uh, they're thinking I'm seeing jail bars, but I never saw any jail bars. I I sat at, I sat at a picnic table with him, and I'd be able to interact with him. I can touch him, give him a hug, you know, play basketball with him, met his friends, and you know, stuff like that. So in my mind, you know, he was in school, and um. That's what it was for a while. It wasn't until my, you know, adolescence, until I got a little bit older, that I realized you can't be in school for 18 years. You know, straight, uh, you got to come out and be a doctor or something about it. So I knew something was going on at that right. point. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> I, well, so well know, how did you feel when you realized that, that he was uh, incarcerated? How did you feel at that point when you found out he was in, being know, incarcerated? Felt, yeah, I, and that's a good question because I started to, uh, like, every, as I said before, everything my mom said was golden, man, because I never know her to, like, you know, fabricate anything to me. But that showed me that, you know, uh, she she does shield things from me, her son, and, you know, it also showed me that uh, my dad, you know, was doing the same thing. And I started acting out. Um, you know, I was smelling myself a little bit in my preteen and teen years. So, you know, just like how other seniors do, I started 
acting up, you know, and, and not just acting up, but I had a lot of anger inside of me because uh, of different things. I saw my mother struggling with one income. I saw him popping in and out of her life. You know, uh, I had that lie that was told to me and all kind of other things that was happening that I just needed a disciplinarian in the home. And even though my mother was very, you know, strict and stern about certain things, there's nothing like that male figure being in the home. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, but the shocker was when I turned uh, 16 years old, my mother sat me down and she said, Vince, she was like, uh, your father, you know, that you, I know you know and love and all the other stuff she said, I want to let you know it's something that's been on my heart for a long time and I've been feeling guilty about it. And she said, um, your father that you know is your father is not your biological father. And we got into this big, huge argument because I blew up on her. And I always had this big respect for my mother, man. But um, I never got any arguments with her or anything. That's how I was raised. But I blew up on it because I was like, you know, first of all, this was a second lie. But then it was a huge lie because even though I had mad animosity for this man for different reasons, I loved him to death. I loved when he came around, when he was home. You know, I loved visiting him and just all kind of things. So it just kind of turned my, put a whirlwind inside of my life, really. And I felt like I couldn't really trust anybody. Um, I was asking her questions. She wasn't really answering them. She was more concerned with, you know, how was I dealing with that news. But, um, you know, I, I, I actually, after I got that news, I just started doing some different stuff, man. Like, I actually went and disowned his side of the family. And I was very close with them. Like, I spent time with them, equal amount of time with them as I did with my mom's side. Because even though he wasn't there, his family was there for me my entire life. But I disowned everybody. And my rationale was that, they are, they're not my blood. And I thought, like, I was the butt of a big joke and, like, everybody, um, you know, knew the secret about me. Um, I didn't find out until later that nobody knew. But um, I just owned the family, and I only was, like, really rocking with my mom's side of the family. Which I said, I know they're my blood because I know I came from her mom, you know, so the, the last name White, I was only rocking with that side of the family. And, um... <clears throat> My my friend was my friend was mad at me. I mean, it was all kind of stuff going on, man. And I ended up so where? Sure, just to follow your story, where does uh where what happened to your actual father then? Did your mother tell you at that time? Well, that's what I was getting to. So I, I graduated oh. from high school, went to college, mm-hmm. and um, so when I turned twenty one, I called my family and I said I was changing my last name. And that's where I got more news at. I told my mom, I was changing my, I was changing my middle and last name. My name, my uh, choir name was Vincent Lopez Maps III. And I changed my name to Vincent Ellis White. And my rationale at the time of, of being 21 years old was that I knew the last name Ellis because my grandfather had that last name that I grew up, that I grew up with partially. And I knew the last name White was my blood. And I, could, and, I, and I didn't look at the other side of my blood. So that lets you know I was going through an identity crisis. At that point is when my mom started giving me more information on it. I guess she thought I couldn't handle it until then. But she said, um, well, listen, you know, I already told you your family didn't know anything about the secret, but you've been so angry at your stepfather, and then now your biological father. And she was like, I never told him about you. And I said, wait, 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 what? And she was like, I never told Chris Anderson about you. Because at 16, all she told me was that my dad's name was Chris Anderson. That was it. She didn't give me any more information or anything. So then she told me she never told my biological father about me. So I had to transfer all that anger that I had for him thinking he was a deadbeat dad, like, elsewhere. So I was just acting out 
um, but then I started looking for him as well. And well, so, was your um, mother like a teenager at this time, like when you were born? No, this sounds like something maybe a teenager would do. You said 35. No, it's, no, no, 25. But listen, oh, 25, it's, okay. Funny it's funny you say that because you think that, but I actually, I, I, work, at the, I work for the state now for the, for the Division of Child Support Enforcement. Uh-huh. And you would be surprised how many mothers have done the same thing. Trust me, it's not a teenager wow. thing. Um, it's, not, it's not an immature thing because I deal with mothers that are in their thirties that do it. It's a it's a oh wow. Um, it's, it's a family secret. It's an embarrassment, you know, type thing. So what happened in talking to my mother as I got older was my mom said that my biggest mistake was not telling your like me and your father parted ways and I found out I was pregnant and she said and I should have told him but I didn't and then I met the guy that you thought was your father. And he was telling me, you know, worry about it. I'll take care of this like he's my own. He ended up signing my birth certificate, so he gave me his entire name. But nobody told me. Wow. You know what I mean? He might what a dynamic so, person. Oh and a, yeah. Yeah. Right. So later on, my mother tried to tell me. But at that point, I found out that my, the person I thought was my dad started um, putting his hands on my mother. So he threatened her like, you know, oh, no. It's secret. So, like I said, it's not just a thing of no immaturity, but it's like it was guilt. It was, uh, you know, being physically abused. Wow. It was all kind of stuff. And, and these, well, and Vincent, these kind of this, is a, this is a little bit of a different story, too, because, okay, so you're the gentleman that you believe was your father who, uh, you know, was, was uh, you know, supportive as he wanted to sign that birth certificate and, and actually be your father, unlike a lot of folks today. Uh, you know, and then he didn't even, he didn't want you to even know that he, that you knew that he wasn't your father. That really doesn't happen all that much. I mean, really, I know it. I mean, I haven't heard of it too often. We see the opposite play out every day on Mari Povich's show. So this is something that seems a little well, different. Well, uh, I mean, like I say, it's, it's, a lot of people are going to be very subjective with their opinions on this. Like, and I see mm-hmm. both. Especially me working with child support now, but I, I can see the, the uh, good intentions in the beginning. I definitely see that. On the flip side, um, he I, I don't recall him being such a great father, just to be honest. Mm. With you. Um, so you know, because he he wasn't there. I mean, for a lot of stuff, like even you know, just just giving me positive reinforcement and a positive role model. And that, those are things; those are attributes that a good, you know, father should possess as well. Um, it, it, it was great that he stepped up, but when you step up, you got to step all the way up. You know what I'm saying? You I totally agree. And get somebody <laughs> your name. Yeah, you can't get somebody your name and and tell and not tell them that you're not their father, but then you don't do anything. And later on, it's not going it's not only going to be a mighty blow when they find out that you're not their father, but it's all it's already been a big blow because you haven't even been there. So what I tell people actually is, I say, hey. Not only was I dealt a mighty blow to find he was my father, but on the low, I was kind of relieved because he hadn't been there, and I was kind of embarrassed the fact that all my friends knew I had a father in, in jail. You know what I mean? So I was looking forward to finding Chris, but then at the same time I got disappointed because I thought Chris was trying to not be in my life either. Found out, you know, found out that he didn't know, and um. 
the beauty of and it all, all that you had to go on was know, whatever your mother was kind of doling out to you in bits and pieces. Right. Right. And mm. the same thing is, wow. didn't, I mean, she didn't know any of his siblings. She didn't know any of his siblings or anything like that. And his name was so common. I like to share this one funny story. Um, his name was so common that she had been looking for him to find him for me because she saw the hurt that I was dealing with and having him there. And she said that one time uh, social services contacted her back and said, we think we found him. And so she rushed down into the social service office, like, you know, hoping to find my dad. And she said, they bring, they bring out a white man. And, uh, and I'm a black guy, you know. Chances are it's probably like, not your daddy. Yeah, and, and so, but the funny thing is, they were trying to convince her, well, this, this fits your description. No, that's, you're missing something critical in there. He's, he's not black, <laughs> he's not white. And I've never cried in front of anybody. 
but he was like, um, you know, you got me like in tears over here. And he was like, I don't know my father. And the reason I've been going out of jail and, and dealing with gangs and violence and anger and all this other stuff um, is because I don't know my dad. You know, I needed a dad there. And then we talked. The whole audience was crying. Um, I was super still appreciate the testimony. And that day I said, okay. I, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, okay, this is no longer about me. Um, I said, this is about me helping other people. And I was so glad that I wrote the book at that point. So that became my motivation. Even though the book was already written, my motivation was now to uplift people that are dealing with fatherlessness. And it just so happened that same day, I met these two guys that said that they do stage plays. And I, I turned them down three times. I was like, I don't know anything about stage plays. But they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. They bought my book. We started working on a cast and script, I mean, a script and, and uh, doing casting. And I'm looking like, where is God trying to take me here? Because all I wanted to do was write a book for myself. <laughs> and next thing you know, it's like I'm going all over the place traveling. I got a pending stage play. Um, I knew I didn't have any money for a stage play, but we were like, we're going to put it on somehow. We put it on in Tidewater area of Virginia, and we had, uh, like, you know, a small response. But I wanted to bring it back home to where I'm from, which is Richmond, Virginia. And uh, I brought it back home, and no money to advertise or anything. And next thing you know, man, this thing just took a life of its own. Like, we sold, we sold our shows. Um, people started donating to it, like nonprofit organizations started donating to it. Um, you know, uh, public figures, I mean, private donors. And we had money to make it travel. Um, we got it on the news. NBC called me. Uh, C, uh, what is it, CBS, ABC, I did two on ABC. And so I just started getting, like, exposure, and we and just started blowing up. And then um, more blessings were coming because people were coming up to me after my show saying, I'm dealing with that right now. Like, young adult, it was um, older adult. I've even, to answer your question about my mom earlier, here's another example. I had some ladies that had to be in their 40s, uh, late 40s, maybe early 50s, that came to me and said, listen, I have a son or daughter right now and um, I have not told them about their, that their father is somebody different than who they know. And, I mean, they were way older than my mom. You see what I'm saying? And I said, you haven't told wow. them? Why not? And they're telling they me their reason why not. And so I immediately go in because it just hits my heart. I'm like, listen, you got to tell them. I don't care how old he is, 13, 18, 20, to go back and forth about it because they tell me their reason for not telling him. And I said, man, end of the day, it's selfish. Like, you got to let them know. And so I've exchanged numbers with them, and they contacted me back. And, like, they contacted me back and said, since talking to you and seeing your play and reading your books, I went ahead and told my son. And, you know, and they keep keep up with me. And, you know, some of them have said, you know, now my son is so glad. I told him he was mad at first, but now he's met his dad. And, you know, another lady told me he's met his family. Um, I mean, it's just been so many breakthroughs and blessings from me sharing my story. Even going further, I mean, that's just a few testimonies. But they, they happen in the droves every time I have a stage play um, or I do a motivational speaking to the point that I just knew it was no longer about me at that point. It was more so about the masses. And, the and you know, all the things that's happening nowadays in society, um, just the elevated incarceration and the violence and everything, you usually can send that back to a big factor being no father in the home, right? I mean, they always, if you do the research and get the statistics, there's always no father, no father in the home. So we can actually, I'm glad like Obama has that, you know, uh, my brother's cheaper and things going on, the father's initiative, because that's where it starts. If we can fix that area in the home, a lot of this stuff will just get filtered out and it goes towards a, 
in a more positive direction. You know what I mean? Exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I like when I've read that um, you referred to it as the father factor. So that's what it sounds like you were just yeah. explaining, but feel free to tell everybody exactly what the father factor is a little bit more. Yeah, I call it the father factor, or I call uh, it's actually referred to as the father wound. But it is the father factor because it's, it's usually the common denominator of a lot of these uh, these negative traits that people are possessing, um, negative symptoms, these um, reactions people are having. If you were to take any of them, one out of every three five, um, young adults has grown up without a father, especially in African-American communities, one out of every three. So we want to narrow it down to that. Um, and there's no disciplinary in the home. There's nobody to for a male or female to learn from, a male to model himself after. And a female is supposed to give her heart up to her father first. If there's no father there, she has no you know, male role model there, and therefore, um, if you look up the symptoms, symptoms of a young female not having a father in the home, it's usually like promiscuity, you know, maybe not trusting men, or on the flip side, um, like giving almost every man your heart because you're looking for your father. You know, so things like that, um, not not having a high value, high self-esteem because of that. And for males, if there's no father in the home, you know, they may go towards gangs, they may go towards violence, they harbor a lot of anger like I did. They harbor a lot of anger, and they take it out in other ways. They may, you know, uh, have domestic violence on their girlfriend. Um, you know, so there's so many symptoms that all resort back to the father's factor um, and the father wound. And so I say wound because a lot of people think that it's just young people. But that's, that's so incorrect. It's, it's millions of adults that are out here, 30, 40, 50, 60, just walking around with a father wound. And their wound is that I never had my father at home whatever the case may be, some of them are still looking. I still want him there. I want to know why he left. Why did he put his hands on my mom? Why did he do this? Why did he do that? And they still need that answer. Now, if you ask them, they're not going to tell you that because they don't know how to express that. A lot of them say, I don't need him. I don't need him. I just need my mom. <clears throat> but yes, you do. You need him. And, and if you don't need him, you need you need some questions answered. Even those questions so, answered may help you. And so so yeah, it sounds yeah. like you're talking about closure. Uh, for these uh, the children of, of of these fatherless homes, if you will. Um, well, okay. Yeah, and these children turn into adults with no closure. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is yeah, just interesting. I have adult. to tell you. Wow. All right. Well, hold on. If, if folks out there, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. Uh, I'm Kerry Hines. Now, I have with us today, he's the author of Finding Chris, My Father. And uh, it's a book out that speaks to um, the lack of uh, a father in being in the homes, and I'm sure how it influences the children or the whole family, all of the dynamics, I'm sure. Uh, So this has been turned into a play. Um, you started the trek uh, to look for your own father, Chris, of course, um, which is the title, Finding Chris, My Father. Um, and yeah. we haven't gotten to the part yet about you finding him. So we're we're going to get to that in just a moment. But what led you to, or how did this lead you to the work that you do currently with the social work? Um, you know, I, I, 
it feels like it was indirectly because I I like to joke with people tell that I have so many different degrees and none of them go together and none of them are in the work that I do now. So it, I, I just feel like it's it's, uh, it's a divine it's, it's divine intervention that I end up in this field because I have an undergrad degree in mass communication, I have a master's degree in education, and I have an executive graduate certificate in business management. So none of the three are the same. And, you know, when you grow up, they teach you to get your degrees in the same thing. Um, right. Now, fortunately, I was, able to make, I, was forced, I was able to make them all work out now with what I do. But at first, I didn't, I didn't have any degree in this field. And I was just working odd jobs here and there. And all of a sudden, I started mentoring part-time. And when I started mentoring mm-hmm. part-time, the mentoring was just so fulfilling working with these young adults. And um, as, I, as you mentor, you know, you build rapport with them. I started noticing that none of the kids that I mentored had any problems yet. Not only that, they were coming from group homes, foster homes. You know, some of them had may have had a mental health issue um, or something like that. So I started, and it started just, you know, of course, touching my heart because it's what I went through. And, um, you know, I, and then I, think, you know, I took a full-time job as a life skills coach um, working with young adults. And all of these guys I worked with were great young adults, I mean, full of potential, but they had so much baggage. And a lot, and, and it was that father factor. I can't tell you one of them that had a father, to be honest with you. I mean, I remember them all. Or if they had a father, the father was putting their hands on them, or you just being a horrible example of a father, and they were mimicking that. So I just started to really develop a passion for working with these young adults. And um, I said, man, it's crazy I don't have a degree in this, but I really want to pursue this. So I just started, I said, look, I just took it to God. I'm like, if you can get me, you know, whatever job I was applying to, I know the degree is asking for this. but I have this heart and this passion. If you can get me in an interview, I'll kill it. And I go in an interview, and they're like, you don't have a degree in this, but I just I have the experience. And I would get an interview, get the job, and I started working. I worked at the Richmond Department of Social Services. I worked as a life skills coach. I worked as a counselor. I worked in benefits. Uh, I mean, I've just worked with youth and families for a long time, even to the point now I'm um, – I've worked at the Mayor's Youth Academy. The Mayor of Richmond has a youth academy for young adults to help them you know, be on the right track. I was a counselor there. I worked at prisons. Uh, I worked at, uh, as a CO. I worked as a counselor, a youth counselor in a prison. I mean, I've worked with so many different young adults and adults that all, as I talk to them and as I have counseling groups and sessions, guess what? The father factor is a common denominator every time. And I don't even mean for it to happen like that, but it's just a real fact in life. And so now I work for the Division of Child Support Enforcement, and of course, I hope you can guess the father not being there and is just a huge um, thing with Division of Child Support Enforcement as well. And I want to be clear, it's not always the father, because we have plenty of non-custodial parents that are mothers, that are uncles, and, you know, aunts and everything. But just to, to keep it all the way real with you, though, it's, it's the highest percentage is fathers not being there. And so I have a passion for it. So it, just, it falls in line with everything that I do. My degrees actually work now because MassCom is just all about basically, you know, speaking and communication. I do that all the time now with my work I do with my books and plays. Um, you know, business, I have my own LLC that I do educational workshops. I sell books. I do my plays. So the, the, um, the business management piece is there. And then the master's in education, I educate people all the time. I work in, you know, schools and things like that when I speak. So now I've been able to tie all my degrees in together, which is a beautiful thing, because that's something I was asking God for for a long time. Now I'm able to tie them in together. 
Well, I'll tell you, I like when I read uh, VEW Enterprises, uh, VIEW Enterprises, I would imagine. I love it. I thought it was such a great name. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Yes, as an entrepreneur. Now, uh, just to go back just a little bit, because I like uh, this information that you've just explained about uh, really the whole subject. But what I didn't ask you is that why do you think we have so much of this prevalent in our community where we don't have the fathers present in the homes? What do you think? I'm just curious You know, on your take on this. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, I was gonna say, and it will be just that. It'll be just a thing, because I I I do not proclaim to have the answer, um, and I like to just have open discussion and awareness, because I don't have the answer. And I actually had somebody tell me on another interview I did recently. They were saying that it goes back to slavery, and I said, man, you know, I didn't even think about it that far back. You know, I'm only thinking about what I see, and you know, going back to what I, you know, what I've encountered and stuff like that. But they broke it down to me saying that you know, go back to slavery, and you know, and and, and uh, the, the men being stripped away from the families and, you know, losing their sense of pride, things like that. And that was an interesting perspective. So in answering your question, it'll only be just a perspective of what I think. But I, so my answer to that is just that I believe that um, a lot of our men nowadays have not been taught and, and have forgotten what it's like to be kings and to, and to fulfill our purpose that God designed for us. And I say that to say, you know, um, God didn't design for these broken families. You know, God designed for man and woman to be in the family and and for the man to be the um, provider, the protector, and, you know, just the king in the home. You know what I mean? And I don't mean king in, in any type of, like, I, I rule everything, you know, you have no say type thing. But you know what I mean, just a king. Like, you taking care of the home, you making sure everybody's straight. The kids straight, you praying over the family, things like that. And so when, when, when men started to stray from that, role that is designed for them, now everything breaks apart. Keep in mind, it's just my opinion, but I believe that everything breaks apart. So now you've got these amazing women that have to step up outside of their role and have to play both sides. The, the woman now has to play father and definitely be the mother. So they're designed to be nurturing and do all those great things, but they're not designed uh, to be the top provider like a man is supposed to be. They're not designed to be the be protected like a man's supposed to be. Now, they do a great job at it, and they raise kings, you know, even like me. I was raised by a woman that did it. But um, the thing about it is, is like, imagine if it stayed like the way God designed it. Imagine if that happened. I just don't think we have these incarcerated brothers. I don't think we have these, these, these guys on unemployment and these, you know, guys in the project and these guys doing, committing different types of crimes. If we had men that were stepping up and being who God designed them. And so that's where I am with it. I just want to, I, I want to raise kings. I want to let these men know that, hey, listen, before you think you ain't nothing, and before you think this all I'm ever going to be is, you know, whatever you're doing, this crimes or whatever, you actually are designed to be much more. But, but, but nobody told you. You know what I mean? Nobody set an example for you to know that you're supposed to be that. And the only way I knew it is that my mom told me, and then my faith in God and matured. But I didn't have nobody to place my eyes upon and see that. You know what I mean? I had my grandfather that was there. He was a great example. So I think he helped too, but he died when I was younger. But I didn't have a father that was supposed to be there 
sit there, hey, son, don't do that. That's leading down the wrong path. Hey, do this, do that, look at me. And, you know, so I, and I, I don't think it's just fatherhood either. To, to go on a little different subject, I think it also is about relationships too. A lot of men can't really perform in the proper way in the relationship, and that's why we, we cheat and we do this and that. Because um, if we imagine if we had that father in the home that not only did those things I spoke about earlier as far as protection, but imagine if you're a young man and you see your daddy treating your mom like a queen, like he holding doors, he, you know, getting her what she needs, he takes care of her when she's hurting, he talks to her, he communicates with her. He only has one wife, one woman. When you grow up, you're going to want to mimic that. But on the flip side, in reality, we got a lot of guys out there not being home, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? They got different women that they're bringing in and out of their life. Sometimes even they tell their son, hey, don't say nothing. You know what I mean? So just, I mean, just keeping it real. So imagine you got that. That's what you see. Then you're going to exemplify that negative characteristic later on. And then you out here being a player just like Papa was. You know what I'm saying? So it all stems back to that father's factor. factor but it's not just about fatherhood. It's about what example are we setting. And, and, and it's basically mm-hmm. based on what our parents said. You see what I'm saying? So I yes, completely. Wow. Well, Vincent, I have to ask you now, if someone, let's take a look, if someone is going through the same situation that you've been through, and as you mentioned earlier, we did talk a little bit about this, but what advice would you give to someone now who is finding out that someone who they thought was their father uh, now is not their father? Um, Speak to that a little bit, uh, if you would. Uh, just what advice would you tell that person? What would the the Vincent now say to the Vincent then? Uh, that that actually happened to me. So I'll give you a real example. That happened. I, I went to my alma mater, Norfolk State, in April, and I spoke on the panel. And um, I spoke about my story, finally so said my father. And this kid came up to me. He waited in line for a long time. And uh, he had a screw face on when he came up to me. And he started talking to me. He was like, man, your story is so real. Like, you actually have lived what I'm currently going through. And I had to be elaborated. He said, I don't know my father. You know, and I, and I just found out who he is. I found him on Facebook. And he said, I reached out to him, but he, he, he doesn't want to talk to me. And his face just got tighter and tighter as he was talking to me. And I said, well, first of all, I said, you got to release that, that anger that you got going on right now. He's like, I'm not angry. I said, no, nah, it's on your face. I see it. And so I said, you got to release this anger. He's like, well, he should have did this, isn't it? I said, look, you know I know. You know I know. Because I was you at 16. I was very angry. And you couldn't even mention father to me because I snapped. And so he kind of loosened up, and we talked. And I and he was like, I don't think I need to meet him. I said, I only reached out. I said, but see, this is the thing. You reached out because you do need to meet him. It's something inside of you that yearns to hear from him. I told him, I said, you know what, your outcome may not be as great as mine was, just realistically speaking. I said, he could be a bum, or he could just be dead. He could be, you know, a regular guy. You just never know. But the thing is, you still need to hear from him and, and, and have that time to dialogue with him because of that closure piece that you mentioned earlier. Even if you meet him and he says straight up, I don't want nothing to do with you, it's going to hurt, but you at least got an answer from him. Or, or you might meet him and he said, oh, my God, I never knew about you. You see what I'm saying? So when I told him all of that, he was nodding and listening, and, and it was breaking walls down as I was telling him. And he said, I never thought about it like that. I said, right. And when I was 16, nobody broke it down to me like that. But I now know, as an older gentleman now, I know that there's always another side to the story. It don't mean the side is great, but I'm just saying 
you need to hear from him. I said, listen, reach out to him, remove that animosity, find a way, whether it be, you know, pray to whoever you believe in or just go to a quiet place, but remove the animosity so you can't come to him with that because then he's going to be, he's going to turn away. And I was like, you got to also remember, too, he might be feeling guilty as well. Don't think he's just staying away because he's staying away. He might say, I messed up in the first five years, but now it's already been five years on. I might as well stay away another five because I feel so good there wasn't there for the first five. I just said, see, you gotta, you gotta ask him why. You know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta hear the answer from him. And um, you know, he he was against it at first, but as I kept talking, me and him exchanged number two. This is real stories. And he kept texting me to give me updates. But you know, his most recent text, this is no lie. Thanks to God, he said, he said, Vincent, I just want to keep in touch with you, like I told you I would. He said, I'm going to meet my dad at this um, next week or something like that, next week. He said, I'm kind of nervous, but I'm excited, too, because we talked on Facebook. I let him talk. I didn't come at him like in a negative way, and now I'm about to meet him for the first time. And he said, I would never even go to meet him had I not met you. And so my advice to young people that are dealing with this is that, you know, you got to face your fears. you got to at least try to have an adult conversation with this person, even if you're mad at them or whatnot. you gotta just, you got to hear have open communication with them. I think it's going to help as far as exposure. It's going to help with their anger. And not always anger. Sometimes it's just confusion. It's going to help with their, those question marks floating around in your head. Who is he? Well, what did he do? Why did he walk away? Why did he stay? And on the real, it might have been something, you know, your mom did. See, there's so many different variables to this that you can't just go on what your mom said. You can't just go on what your thoughts are. You got to get all the different sides. So that's what I well, would I think, the other sure, thank you very much. Now, I think uh, this is a great point for us to kind of go back to your story. So you had been searching and searching. Um, you know, you were told that your the person you thought was your father all this time was not your father, and uh, he was uh, incarcerated, this person you thought was your father. And you had all kinds of right. uh, feelings of frustration for different levels and so forth and so on. And you found out your mother had told you uh, what turned out to be uh, something false a time or two uh, regarding uh, the person you thought was your father. Um, right. wh- how did it all come to be that you actually uh, moved closer to discovering Chris? Your um, father. Well, so... Yeah, I mean, it, it was actually by happenstance. Um, and, you know, this is kind of like the climax in the book, really, but it was like happenstance. I would just, well, don't don't I give would, us the I real know. ending of the book. <laughs> Do not give us the ending of Finding Chris, my father, because we want to pick up the book. So we're right. we're going to, yeah, we're going to park it when we get real close to that point, because I want to make sure everybody gets this book, uh, including myself. I think it's a... Uh, a great idea. It's a great subject, and we'll talk more about it. But I'll let you finish because I, I really like this idea. Yeah. So, and I'll stop right before that. So, what happened is like you know, I graduated from college, and I'm just going on with life. Like I go get my undergrad degree, I get my master's, and I'm I'm doing what I call masking, which is where like I'm able to put on this mask, like everything's fine, and you know, it's partially going great. You know, career and degree and whatnot. But there's this piece that's missing. But I, I keep in mind, we had no information. So I literally didn't hear anything about, you know, a Chris or anybody at that point um, from, you know, graduating undergrad to, you know, in my later later 20s. 
And um, like I said, I don't want to give away the story, so this is what I have to stop at. But I ended up, I will just tell you this. I ended up uh, meeting him. But when I tell you the story, is is crazy. Like, it's just so unbelievable. Y'all have got to get the book, Finally Chris, my father, I'm telling you. Um, now, how do we get the book? Um, well, you can get it on Amazon.com. So you just go to Amazon and, um, you know, you can type it, Finally Chris, my father. It's on Kindle and paperback. Um it's also, I mean, it's on a lot of sites, you know, it's on barnesandnobles.com, uh, things like that. But Amazon's probably the most popular place everybody goes to. So it's there. Um, you know, you can definitely follow me on uh, social media because I, I update everything on there. It's links to the book, um, excerpts and play stuff, so, I mean, motivational speaking engagement. And so I'm on um, Facebook. My name is Vincent Ellis White. I'm on Instagram, Vincent Ellis White. And Twitter is Vince Ellis White. Um, so definitely follow me on there, but get the book on Amazon.com, man. Find the Chris, I guarantee you'll love it. I want to tell you, too, not only is it a travel stage play and God just keeps expanding my audience, but I recently had a Hollywood producer take a strong interest in it and option my book. And what that means is that they say they want to turn the book into a stage play. So my book has been optioned, um, to, I mean, I'm sorry, not stage play, excuse me, into a film. My book wow. is an option to be turned into, into a motion picture. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm still taking options, though. So, I mean, I'm always looking for another option for people to know the best offer is and whatnot. But I was just shocked because I never in my dreams would I imagine a story that I looked at as a bad thing would turn out to be blessing so many people and creating awareness. But also, it can ultimately become a film which can hit the theaters and bless the masses and things like that. So, it's just a beautiful thing, man. It sounds like a very beautiful thing. And on that note, I have to say, what in closing might you share with the folks out there uh, for whatever they're going through, Mr. Vincent Ellis White? What would you say to folks? Because apparently, uh, and you've been dealing with a lot of families on so many different issues, and usually that's relating to this, uh, the father factor or fatherless factor, if you will. What, uh, what kind of advice would you give overall? Or what's your closing thought on, on, on folks who are going through things these days as it relates to the family? Yeah, no problem. My closing thought is just, you man, it, it's really about uh, having hope and, and being encouraged and being uplift. Um, you know, man, life, life, I ain't gonna let nobody tell you life is easy. Like, life is tough. We go through something that we think is the toughest thing in the world. Then six months later, we go through something even tougher. So we got to have hope. We have to be encouraged, be uplift. The thing that saved me was everything from my faith to having mentors. Uh, you know, I was in the Boys and Girls Club. I had some strong, positive, you know, male role models there. But now, even as an older man, when I get then when I get down, I can have positivity around me. So I tell everybody, man, no matter what you're going to, through, find somebody that find some people, some positivity that you can just surround yourself with, just like a big hug, like and surround yourself with positivity, people that's going to lift you up. Because, you know, if you're already on the verge of breaking, you don't need to be around on negativity. I stay around people that lift me up. So I would, that will give you that hope that you need. Um, you know, hopefully if you're a person of faith, man, just go, go to that, let that faith build and understand that, you know, whatever the enemy has meant for bad, God can turn around for good. And that's just really what I float on right there. Like I always think about it. I was like, oh, my God, this situation is so bad. And that's what I'm thinking about at the time. But then, like, a year or two later, I'm looking back, and it's just that situation turned into something so good. And I'm looking back, like, you know, how did that even happen? But if I never had hope, I don't know that I would have got there. 
So everybody that's listening, no matter if you're going through your father not being there, your mother putting your hands on you, everybody's on drugs in your family except you, you don't have no money, no car, whatever is going on, understand that that's a valley. It's only for a moment. And that moment could be 20 years. But I'm just saying it's only for a moment. You need to have hope, be encouraged, and understand that you can and will get out of that situation. Uh, have faith and surround yourself with the right people. Uh, connect with the right people. And, you know, you're going to you're gonna have a breakthrough and get out of that situation. You're not designed to be in that turmoil forever. And so, you know, I believe that you'll all get out of it as long as you have faith and have hope. Wow. On that note, I want to thank Mr. Yes, on that note, I want to thank Mr. Vincent Ellis White. Vincent, thank you so much for being with us on the Hair Radio Morning Show. Just your message. Just like the eyes are the window to the soul, the scalp is the window to beautiful and luxurious hair. The way to obtain it is with stimulating roots. Stimulating roots will exfoliate and detoxify your scalp, promoting healthy hair growth. Stimulating Roots has a system to detoxify and grow your hair. Their shampoo combines menthol, camphor, and pink grapefruit essential oil to improve blood circulation in the scalp. Their conditioner, that stimulates, moisturizes, and hydrates the hair. The Regeneration Oil, that contains essential oils that work together to promote hair growth while calming an itchy, dry, and irritated scalp. Open the window to beautiful and luxurious hair. Awaken the senses to your scalp with Stimulating Roots. This is available at StimulatingRoots.com. That's StimulatingRoots.com. You're listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. I'm Carrie High. We have a very special guest with us today. She is an author. The Hair Radio Morning Show would like to welcome Miss Gloria Lee. Gloria, welcome to the Hair Radio Morning Show. I thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, it is my pleasure to finally get you on our broadcast. Now, I have to just jump right on in. You are the reason we're celebrating the Women of Courage Month, all month long. And I like to say this, it's not just this month, but it's every day here on the Hair Radio Morning Show. So we want to start by you telling the folks all about your beautiful books. You've got two, and they're titled Women of Courage. So let's start with book one. Tell us a little bit, what exactly is Women of Courage all about? Tell us. I began writing the books because I wanted women to understand how much courage it takes to be a woman. See, our courage is not acknowledged. Men acknowledge their courage. They speak about courage on the battlefield. They speak about courage being a minister. But female courage has never been acknowledged. And that's wrong, and it has been used to enslave women because it does not let women understand the power that they have inside them. And I began writing the books because I wanted women to see other women who have succeeded 
because they had courage. So I had began to research um, my mission, actually, when this first started, was to find out why men killed women. So I began researching that. As I began to research, I began to gather other information, and I began to see that part of the problem was the fact that women did not acknowledge themselves. Women have been told that they're servants, that they're supposed to serve. Correct. That's fine. But they haven't been told that they have a right to be their own person. And because of that, women live desperate lives. They live lives that they hate. They learn to despise themselves. And in turn, they are unhappy. For years, especially between 1920, 1950, women either drank in the basement, they'd have a little sherry every day, and then when tranquilizers became uh, part of the vogue, especially uh, for, for white women, okay, they began, the white doctors would uh, prescribe them tranquilizers. This was based on the theory that women were hysterical, okay? So they, this part of their, their uh, spirit had to be controlled through medication. But actually what was happening is women were internalizing their anger and their rage because they were forced to live lives that they did not want. But let me give you an example. For years, poor women, poor white and black women, invented things, okay? I bet you do not know who actually invented the refrigerator. I no, bet tell you us. don't know who invented, oh, no, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to look. Uh-oh. <laughs> who invented the bulletproof vest? Now, now mm. here's the secret. Men kept that a secret from women, that women invented certain things, okay? That women were chemists, women were physicists. But many of the inventions of poor white women and poor black women were stolen because when they went to have their inventions patented, the patent office told them that they couldn't, females couldn't patent inventions. Did you know that? Well, that doesn't really surprise us, though, Gloria Lee, because that's, uh, you know, the historical part of this whole context in this country, and that was the charge that they had. And, in fact, uh, as you were explaining uh, this history here uh, about women uh, not necessarily not being, um, you know, able to do certain things because they're female, But what surprises me, and I'm sure our listeners of the Hair Radio Morning Show can certainly identify, is that you could almost take the word female or woman out of what you're saying and insert the word black. Both. That's exactly what I'm saying. 
any person that will not fight, and I, I have to be careful because this is a radio show and I don't want to be vulgar. But anyway, you have to wear pants. Be white and wear pants. Then you were given acknowledgement. But here's the, here's the thing. I want you to appreciate this. When the women went to the patent office to have their ideas patented, what happened to their ideas when they weren't accepted by the patent office? They were stolen. Mm. That's my point. They mm. were stolen. And then white man walked into the patent office, his, his information is patent, which he stole from a female or a black person, and he made money off of it. Now, Gloria, I do have to ask you where, you know, because these are some pretty uh, inflammatory claims, perhaps, that some may say. So where, what kind of research did you have to do to kind of substantiate these claims? Because you've written uh, quite an explosive couple of books here. And we're, you know, and folks, if you're just joining us out there, let's be clear. You're listening to the all-new Hair Radio Morning Show. This is a very special broadcast. And I'm Carrie Hines. And with us on the line today, we have the author of Women of Courage books, uh, Gloria Lee. Uh, And so we love, uh, you know, your forthrightness. Um, But what do you say when when folks say, well, how can you prove certain things that you've put into the books? What do you say, Gloria Lee? First of all, I say take the information from my book and then go to the library and verify it. It's real simple. Mm. But when you want to verify it, be prepared because this information is not consolidated, okay? It's everywhere. You have to go into a library and pull it out of the newspapers. Who Who wants the world to know that women are as inventive as men? Who wants the world to know that women have as much courage as men? Nobody walking wearing pants wants that because they want the enslavement of women. It's profitable. You, you, here, I don't want to jump ahead, but listen to me. When blacks were brought to this country, the only way they were able to control the black man was to attack the black woman. They attacked her mind. And that is the same way that the white male has been able to control the entire world is by attacking the mind to make a person feel less than or that he's not capable of. Sir, you are as capable of doing anything that you want to do if you want to do it and if you're willing to pay the price. The, the, here, Michael Jordan, give me, let me give you an example. I, I, I studied him, okay? When his father was murdered, it upset me. So I began to watch Michael Jordan to see how he responded. Okay, not only is he a hero, he's a black male, and I wanted to know how he was going to react to these two males. But as I was researching him, I found out how he became Michael Jordan. Do you know how long 
he would stay on the basketball court. Oh, right, through the study. Yes, I I heard for hours and hours and through repetition. And see, Gloria, I was just sharing exactly what you just what you just mentioned. I was sharing that with a gentleman today. And I said, you know, it is through repetition and through study and just all these years of research and just it makes you into an expert at what you do. And you may not even realize that you qualify for that level of 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 knowledge and that yes. title. But you do. That's, now that's Gloria exactly how he became Mike. I love what you say. I love everything that you have said. And I appreciate you, you know, just letting it just go on out there. Um, I want to start, though, at the beginning. We're going to take a little bit of a turn. I want to go back to really what has kind of set you up to be Gloria Lee. So share with the the Hair Radio Morning Show fans, uh, where are you from? Where where were you born? And where do you live in, in these days? In America, so share with us some of your background. Uh, where did you get your start? Okay, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. And shout out were, to Detroit folks. Okay, we have to do that. I was born May seventh, nineteen forty-five. Uh, I would say that there are three people that affected my personality deeply. I mean, I've been affected by lots of people, but it was my grand-aunt, my father, and my mother. I had a, I had a grand-aunt, and the way she earned money, she refused to, to, to work in houses, okay? She would not do day labor. She pushed a push cart, and I started working with her when I was six. And I would go, I would go with her pushing the push cart down the street, and we would pick up scrap. This is a time when tin and things like that were valuable, and you would gather this stuff up, cardboard, glass, whatever, and you push it to. Um, we would call it the refuse place now, but it, it was a junkyard at that time, and they would weigh the the the, the refuge, and we would get paid. Well, see, I love money, so I would always like to be with my great aunt because she would pay me at the end of the day. We would go miles and miles walking, going through refuge and, and, and picking up clothing, those sort of things. When we were walking, she would talk to me. This is years later that I realized that she was shaping my, my personality. The one thing that she told me, that I maintained all of my life. A woman is never to be without money. I want your listeners to hear me. If you are a female, you are never to be without money. I don't care if you have if you're hungry. Drink water. That's what she told me. But if why not? Choice, why not? Listen to me. If there's a choice between Eating and spending your money, you drink a glass of water. The reason why a woman is never to be without money is because you don't want to sell your body and have no man put his hands on you. Mm. Because that is the destruction of women. 
Why do you think that when warring factions took over Europe, the Russians, for really example, during World War II, do you know that the Russian army raped every female in Germany between the ages of 8 and 80? Do you know how many females they raped? Because rape is power, and it is to destroy your psyche. So, therefore, if you are a woman and you do not have any money, because I was on the street when I lost everything that I had. I was on the street with my son, and all I had was a car, <clears throat> excuse me, and I had no money. <clears throat> and the thought came to me. I was standing in, in Oak Park on Greenfield and 11 Mile Road. I was standing in the Kmart parking lot. Oak and Park is that in? Isn't that Illinois? No, sir. That's uh, Oak Park, uh, Michigan. It's oh, right Oak outside. Park, it's a suburb. It's a suburb of Detroit. Oh okay. oh, okay. And the thought came to me: Well, why don't you go with this man and get you some money so you can feed your son? Mm. For a second, that idea came to me because that's an alternative that's always given to women. See, the man tells you. Look, you ain't got no money, then you can just sell your body. That's the easiest way to live. It's not. That's self-destruction. So consequently, when I'm, it's, I want you to understand, it was cold. It was October. I had no money. And, and I, I think like a quarter tank of gas. And that, you know, ain't nobody going to know. Mm. And then I remembered my my grand aunt. That was the other thing that she told me. You let no man put his hands on you. And she started telling so me. So she that uh, she I insisted that you keep your grand aunt insisted that you keep funds in your pocket, have money. Now, yes, what was your grand aunt's name? We should just pay tribute to her today. Maddie. It was Madeline, but they called her Maddie. Maddie. She was, she was yes, she was about five nine, five ten, and um. <clears throat> so she, she stood tall in many ways. Yes, yes, yes. She was she was uh very very strong because you know pushing that push cart for miles. You had to power. be exactly. Yes. Wow. And I want you to know that women in China still push push carts. Yes, I've been to China. Yes. I've been. So, yes, I know. Now, I just want to let folks know, um, again, if you're just joining us, uh, again, today is a very special broadcast that we're kicking off our entire month talking to Gloria Lee. Now, she is the author of Women of Courage. Now, Gloria, I do want to kind of go back to this first book. I do want to talk about it. The title is Women of Courage. And um, on this book, the cover, I love the beauty of the book cover. Thank you. Would you Thank be you. kind enough to tell our listeners who, uh, if you can name the women that you've uh, pictured, uh, I'd love it. If you can just give us a few, if you'd like, talk about those women. And and you got to remember out there, guys, uh, for you guys listening to the show, it's difficult to to really come up with just a few 
of, of, you know, women that you feel the most courageous women. So you really are someone who took time and effort and energy into creating this. Would you be kind enough to tell us who some of the women that you put on the cover and why? Well, <clears throat> I will tell you one of them is Mother Teresa. And, and I have a Mother Teresa story for you, too, by the way. <laughs> I have a connection <laughs> with Mother Teresa as well. But, yes, you go ahead. I'll tell you guys a little later. Go right ahead, Gloria. You put Mother yes. Teresa. Mother Teresa is like in the one, of, I think, the corner, if I'm not mistaken. I love that. Yes, yes. There's another woman that I I put there for a particular reason. I wanted to give recognition to this woman. Her name is Iris Chan. She is an American Chinese author, and I felt that many, many, many people do not know of her work. I'm not going to tell you what she did. I think women should go and find out. Her name is Iris Chan, C-H-A-N-G. Well, hold it. Now, if we buy your book, if we buy your book, Women of Courage, we're going to find out. Well, okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to find out. That's where we're doing our research. Who else do you have, Gloria Lee? Now, I want you to know what she did was very, very painful. Oh, okay. And this is this is what this is why the book is Women of Courage. It takes courage to do things painful. It's it's not pleasant. But there are things that must be done even though they are painful. Now, another woman on that on the cover is Eleanor Roosevelt. Tell us why. And, oh, Eleanor Roosevelt was not prejudiced. And she spoke her mind when it came to black people. And not only mm. did she speak her mind, she did certain things to make and to ensure that people knew where she stood about black people. And again, wow. I'm not going to tell you what she did, but that's wow. Because you got oh, to remember, so you, re- you, Gloria Lee, you know how to tease. I thought I could tease. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm a distant second. You, you know how to tease a, a book. I love it. <laughs> so yeah, so Glo- so Gloria, tell us now. You said, um, and that's great. We got to get the book, Women of Courage, to find out some of these amazing stories that you've assembled. And some of your favorite women. Now, who else do you have? Okay. The now this is another person. Um, her name is now I cannot really pronounce her name. She was the prime minister of Pakistan. Mm. Now I want you to understand that that was a very dangerous occupation for women in Pakistan. I think her name is pronounced Benzarier, but her last name is B-H-U-T-T-O. Oh, Buto. Yes. But, again, you need to know what happened to her. It took courage for her to be who she was. I think I remember her. I remember <clears throat> the story. This one I'm familiar with. Go right ahead. It took courage to, see, it takes courage to say no. Right. It really does. It takes courage. But I'm not going to tell you what I know. I'm not going to say it either. I'm in the Gloria Lee fan club, 
And so I'm not going to tell you. You will get the book. The fans of our show, I encourage you to buy these amazing books, Women of Courage. And Gloria Lee, as she's telling you, she's sharing with you uh, a lot of the women that she finds the most courageous and why. And you will discover exactly some you may be familiar with. Like uh, my, uh, my, my own connection with, I like to call it a connection, but I've never been to Calcutta. Uh, but when I, when I really look at the amazing uh, artistry of, uh, of the work of Mother Teresa, and I remember um, my connection with her was that I had a wonderful uh, doctor where I used to work and the doctor, uh, Dr. Pankow, was just one, she was just somebody that I spoke with on a regular basis, and I loved it. And Dr. Pankow uh, sent me a picture of she, along with Mother Teresa, and that meant the world to me, to have the both of them on one picture, and I used to talk to Dr. Pankow every day, and uh, that's how I was most connected to her and she told me all about she went out and went over to I think it was Calcutta with Dr. Uh, with Mother Teresa and this was amazing and I've, I kept that picture for a long time and I've always felt a certain kinship with her and also the same with uh, Lady Di but that's another story. So that was just the fact of how beautiful it was when I saw Mother Teresa on the cover of Gloria Lee's book. Amazing. And great choices. The women you selected, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> but you forgot one. Who? Gloria Did Lee. You hear the deepness? Did you? Oh, my God. Gloria Lee. I didn't touch Gloria Lee. I, I, um, I've been forced to. Uh, several women have been forcing me to because they told me that I have to talk about myself. You have to, Gloria. Yes, I, I've to. been told that. I, a friend of mine is insisting that I, I write about myself. Yes, because you know what? You share amazing stories about these wonderful women, and they were. Everything that you have described and you put into your books and more. But what really makes it interesting is the story that you tell of yourself through your eye. And there's only one person can tell that story, and that's Gloria Lee. Now, folks, I have to say, um, when I kind of discovered who you are, I was quite moved. And, uh, and it takes a lot to move me. I've been doing uh, radio programming for um, two and a half decades. And to uh, discover uh, someone who has been just working tirelessly to educate, inform uh, women and particularly women of color, and I, that you, you resonate and our stories kind of coincide because that's all that we've done. 
My platform has been to do it through the hair and beauty industry. And so I am so honored to have Gloria Lee with us. And I'm also honored to declare this month as Women of Courage Month. And not just this month, but every day here on the Hair Radio Morning Show. Now, Gloria, Gloria Lee is our guest today. And I want to kind of go back a little bit on this as well. In that book, in that book, you make a dedication. And so uh, this first part of many series uh, that we're going to explore today was just an introduction teaser uh, to the um, the many parts and, and uh, that we have of Miss Glory Lee. So we're real excited about it. But I do want to pay tribute. Uh, now, this is a, a, a touching dedication uh, in your book that um, just moved me. And there's a part that I'll share with you in just a moment. But can you tell us, and I want to make sure I say her name correctly, Allison, was it Pipemeyer? Yes. Uh, or, okay. Can you tell us who Allison Pipemeyer was and what she means to you and why you decided to dedicate the first uh, book, the Women of Courage book, to her? Tell us why. When I was, <clears throat> actually, when I learned of her, I was researching women who had been murdered in the Carolinas. And I saw the announcement of her death, and I began to research some of her work. And what pained me so much is that we lost such a caring person this woman loved people. You could tell it from her work. You could tell it from the things that she did. Um, she didn't just work an eight-hour day. She worked tirelessly writing for various publications, talking to her students, advocating. Do you know how hard it is to to get people to advocate and to stay focused? That's a lot of hard work. And this woman paid the price. And and all of her life's work was to help people in need. She took up some very tough problems in our country. And she didn't back down. I do want to say, just to let everybody know, because I I think this is so critical and important and, and can mean so much to folks. Um, Allison Pipemeyer uh, was the director of women and gender studies and the associate professor of English at the College of Charleston. Now, she yes. contributed a column for the Charleston City Paper and uh, wrote several editorials for the New York Times Motherload blog. And so uh, we lost her back in 2016, ironically, on my birthday, uh, from uh, from brain cancer. Um, But what I love about what you wrote is that she dedicated her life to writing uh, about these subjects that you talk about, uh, such as same-sex parents, women's rights, uh, raising disabled children, Black Lives Matter movement. 
Yes. And 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 at the time of her death, now she spoke into the future, and this there is what go. she had you, to say. Yeah, you got it. You, she wrote, you got I it. do presume to know what a next life would be like. I don't even know what to imagine. In a next life, I hope I would be in a place where people would need me, where there's something meaningful to do. A next life without work, without purpose, would be disappointing. And so uh, what really stayed with me when I read this, uh, and I had to write it down separately and apart from all of my research with you, Gloria Lee, (laughs) I wrote this down because uh, what she writes is that it takes courage, or what she said, it takes courage to live. It takes courage to wake every day and try to make something of your life, knowing you will meet unfathomable challenges. And that stays with me because that is not just can every woman relate to that. Every person of color on the planet Earth, we get up, we decide to go forward and you have the winds just blowing you and you're just barely holding on. So Gloria Lee, I want to thank you for introducing me to Miss Allison Pikemeyer and you can research her yourself. A-L-I-S-O-N-P-I-E-P-M-E-I-E-R. So thank you. And I'm saying to you, the easiest place to research her is when you read Women of Courage by Gloria Lee, books one and two. So Gloria, please tell the fans of the Hair Radio Morning Show how they can get a hold of your books. Okay. Um, They can purchase a book on my uh, website, which is Touched by the Light, dot us now the books are not sold in bookstores and i will not sell them on amazon when you purchase any of my books a portion of that money will go to help women directly i believe in walking up to a woman with children and asking her How can I help? There's a lot of women that need automobiles to get back and forth to work and also to protect their children. So 30% of this this particular book, the Women of Courage series, is going to go to help women. And I explain that on my website, that it is very important that we support and encourage women to stand up and take control of their lives. And when you reach and just give somebody a helping hand, an acknowledgement, you'd be surprised how you can change your life. And that's the purpose of Women of Courage, is for this book to change lives. Well, I think you've heard it first right here, folks. Gloria Lee 
the author of Women of Courage. And I tell you, uh, your website, touchbythelight.us, wonderful. I love it. Just fantastic. (laughs) So you're doing some great work out there. Uh, Again, you've been listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. My guest today, author Gloria Lee, again, Women of Courage. These are the books that we're talking about, and she's been sharing quite a bit of information with us today. And this is just the first part. We've got Gloria all month as we celebrate and continue to celebrate Women of Courage. So um, now, not today. We are going to tease it. But the next time you join us, Gloria, we are, we've got a lot to talk about and uh, where we go forward from here. So those are things that uh, that's one of the biggest things that we're going to kind of, you know, corner and ask you about uh, the next time that you're with us on the Hair Radio Morning Show. So we're going to be checking in with you for all kinds of wonderful things. And uh, I just want to say thank you just for beginning to to kind of, you know, let us peer into your world a little bit and why and how you have uh, come with these wonderful, wonderful things. Um, we also next time want to talk about several signs of, of uh, courageous women. And so there's so many different things that we're going to share. So, again, now I do want to say this. Gloria is also a member of the Hair Radio Social Network site. So let's say, let's be clear. You can connect with Gloria Lee if you are a member yourself. And how do you become a member? It's free. Go to www.hairradio.com. Very simple. Ladies, do you love a man with a well-groomed and sexy beard? Men, do you suffer from patchiness or irritation and want a fuller beard? Well, let me introduce you to the hottest beard care products on the market. Rugged Evolution features 16 amazing balms, oils, shampoos, and accessories. Our products are sure to meet the demands of all your beard care needs. For more information, go to RuggedEvo.com. That's RuggedEvo.com. And remember, Rugged is the new smooth. As women, it seems like we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. And that weight is directly balanced between your two feet. And with this balancing act, who do you think is suffering? It's not the kids. It's your feet. While running errands, paying bills, or dodging traffic, you could be ruining your feet. Wearing the wrong shoes for the wrong period of time can cause more damage than you think. Hammer toe and bunions are the leading deformities in black women. And Dr. Yolanda Raglan is the first black and only female podiatrist with practices dedicated solely to the correction of these type of deformities. So let this black girl do some magic and fix your feet. For more information, visit fixyourfeet.com providing medically necessary surgery with a cosmetic result. You're listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. I'm Carrie Hines. Now, I have a very special guest with us today. He's from the world of barbering. The Hair Radio Morning Show would like to welcome Mr. Jeff Johnson. Good morning, Jeff. Welcome to the Hair Radio Morning Show. Good morning. Good morning. I'm uh, I'm actually honored to be here and... uh... (laughs) You know, it, 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 I'm, I'm very honest, very honest. Awesome. Well, I have to say, first of all, uh, and I really mean that, welcome to the Hair Radio Morning Show, because you're making your debut right here, right now, with uh, all of us here on the broadcast. Uh, so what do you have to say? Let's let's tell the folks a little bit about who Jeff Johnson is. All right, Jeff Johnson, uh, I was born and, and partially raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the northwest section. 
Shouting out my folks down in the Philly area. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I grew up um, really in, in Pensalka, New Jersey. That's where I started. Pensalka, yes. Yeah, Pensalka, uh, South Jersey. Uh, spent some time in the military, in the U.S. Uh, United States Navy. Um, let, let, let me go back a little bit. Um, during the time when I was about 16, 15, 16, 17 years old, um, I knew I wanted to be a barber. Um, I was the kind that I would cut my friend's hair in school, send them to uh, school sometimes with, with with patches in their hair and <laughs> looking like, you know, they were sick. And as I got better, my mom said, you know, hey, it looks like you're getting better. You're not, you're not, you're not making your friends look like, you know, leukemia patients, you know, sending to school with patches in their hair. Right. So that was a good start for me. So I knew I was on a good path there. Um, it's just something about the barbering. Um, actually, my family is filled with um, stylists, or what you refer to sometimes as kitchen stylists. You know, those who have the skills to 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 to, um, to do hair. And one of my other cousins is actually a barber in PA. Um, so yeah, I took up the, the love of barbering, and it's just for me a great way to communicate with people. Um, awesome, absolutely awesome. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, there's an, a big entrepreneurial aspect to barbering. And so, yeah. of course, it takes all the talent and the skills uh, and all of that, of course, and the techniques and all of that. But what do you say to the folks who are looking to learn on the business side as well? On the business side, I always say, you know, back just like when I learned in school, um, the 80-20 rule, 20% skill, 80% personality. Now, that's not saying that you should – Settle to be a mediocre barber or, or whatever, right. but you have to communicate with the people, and through that um, comes the business side. Um, the business side of barbering, uh, we go to, first of all, going to school will be a great start. Um, I myself, I'm a New, Jer- I'm a licensed uh, New Jersey cosmetologist, which allows me to not just become a barber, but hairstylist, esthetician, uh, makeup artist, uh, even those who have strictly a barber's license. The business of barbering is something that I believe um, which is, is what's really going to make this, this industry great as far as being a barber. I always talk to uh, new barbers, even barbers that have been in the industry for a while, about the business side. Um, you have, you know, again, going back, going to school and doing your hours, um, taking your, 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 your theory test and your practical exam so that you can get your license, which is very important. Um, you know, barbering is one of the, if not the oldest trade in the world. And so I hold that very dear to me, and I take it very seriously. Um, I talk to younger barbers about, again, not just their licenses, because you have a lot of barbers who feel as though that they don't need a license, that they should just be able to go to a a barbershop or any shop and cut, you know, in the world and cut. And unfortunately for me, and I say unfortunate because, you know, it's a lot. It, it, it happened, um, but just like when you go to a dentist's office, you go to a doctor's office. You feel good when you see certificates and see licenses on the wall. So, when you're in the shop, and you have that license, unless your clients and everyone knows that you are regulated by a state, and that makes them feel good uh, as far as them being the client. Because okay. in, in this industry, it's always client first and you second. Absolutely, and I totally agree with that. I do want to ask you about a couple of points on that, though, uh, just to get your opinion, uh, since this is the Hair Radio Morning Show. Uh, one, um, you made a very good point about, um, you know, your license down in the state of New Jersey. I'm up here in New York, and we have a little different uh, guidelines 
But um, I wanted to ask you, because I know there was a time in that state where you had to take the entire cosmetology course. Uh, And before that, I believe it wasn't the case, and then they made it the case, and then I think it's back again to having it as a separate uh, curriculum. So is, I mean, do you have any opinion about that whole uh, thing? I think this current governor, I think he changed everything and made it a little bit easier uh, for uh, the students who are in barbering school. But what's your take on all of that? Well, I I can only speak from my personal experience. and you're 100% correct at one point. You know, it was strictly, you know, if, even if you wanted to be a barber, you have to have a cosmetology license. Um, I'm, some years back, maybe between six and eight years is when they really start to implement the barber's program. And even that was not available at every school. Exactly. Um, so, you know, even myself, when I came into the field, at first I just wanted to get that barber's license, and and, and I couldn't get it because, the state of New Jersey only allowed for cosmetology license, and that's why I wound it up. Um, but now, during this current time, uh, the barber's license is available for anyone who wants to just become a barber. Now, the difference between having a cosmetology license and the barber's license, you know, not just the fact that you get to learn a little bit of everything with your cosmetology, but there's some restrictions that the state puts on you when you're a barber uh, as far as, you know, certain chemicals and whether you're doing um, color or, or doing a relaxer, things like that, or even when you talk about doing facials, those things are under the guidelines of cosmetology. Uh, I see a lot of barbers doing facials. We just have a barber's license in the state of New Jersey, and that's not allowed. So right. for anyone that's coming to the industry that wants to become a barber, look at that and understand where's it that you want to go with this. I, be, I myself having a cosmetology license, It allows me, as I said before, to do a variety of things. Uh, Originally, when I first went to school, I wanted to do hair. I wanted to learn how to do hair, braid, and so on and so forth. But I fell in love with barbering. But if you just want to become a barber, go for it. But just understand that there's some restrictions and limitations uh, that could affect you monetarily if you just decide to be a barber, which is not a bad thing. But if you want to kind of expand yourself and expand horizons, and kind of be able to go into and dip into another field in the beauty industry, then definitely having the New Jersey cosmetology license the way to go. Absolutely, and and that's the thing about all of that and companies like Hair Radio. Uh, we serve to serve the professionals as well as you know all of those folks, uh, the enthusiasts, and everybody who's interested in hair and beauty. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can do uh, if and when you are at that point that you say, hold it. I kind of want to step a little bit back away from the chair. I don't want to leave the chair entirely, but I might want to look and see about expanding uh, my horizons or what have you. That's when you make a phone call to us at Hair Radio, and we're happy to help you. And if that's not the case and you're still behind the chair and you're looking uh, to do some other things even while you're there, we're, of course, here to help and support you with all of that, and we're real happy about that, uh, you know, that ability to do so. Now, the other part of that that I wanted to ask you, you mentioned about the licensing. We are talking about that, and I'm I'm loving the conversation. I wanted to ask you about the uh, folks out in some of those states where they're trying to actually do away with licensing. (laughs) Uh, I can almost guess what you, how you might feel, but I'd love to hear from you on 
your thoughts. Uh, we've gone from one end to the other. So, right. uh, you know, yes, what do you say to that, Jeff? <laughs> and and I, I know exactly what you're saying. There are a lot of states that they already have that in, they already have that in, in, in place as far as not having to have a license, even when you're just wanting to uh, do natural hair. Uh, I think it was stated as, right. but they allow, they, they don't allow you, they don't restrict you to having a license. Um, I say like this, I love this industry. This industry has fed a lot of families. Um, it provided education for a lot of uh, people in the air industry who have children. Uh, the way I see it is this, and I think the reason why, and maybe I could be wrong, but the reason why they're starting to maybe fade away from someone having the state license is really contingent upon the people that are in the industry, the shop owners, the, the barbers or the cosmetologists or hairstylists themselves, who decide to just or who are allowed to work in the shop and that have a license. We do things like that, and as the state board comes through the shops, which I've encountered twice, and they see that there's only a few bars that have a license, they kind of take that almost like a census and say, hey, I went to um, John's Barbershop in Clayton, New Jersey, which, I mean, there is no John's Barbershop, but just for example, I went to John's Barbershop in Clayton, New Jersey, and there was only the manager and two other barbers, um, out, out of eight who have a license. So they kind of take that and then, it, you know, that they, that, that affects this field. Um, because if you don't see it as important enough to have a license in the state, at some point it's going to say, you know what, obviously this is not a field that people want to get licensed in. So we're just going to do, do away with that. My thing is, and as I mentioned before, we have a license, we have a state license, it shows that you are regulated by the state. You have certain things you have to do, and it shows that you have certain knowledge, uh, certain uh, knowledge when you're dealing with, especially as we're dealing with now, um, sanitation, disinfectation, and, and, dis and disinfecting. Um, those two things, when you go to school and you learn those things, they're very, very important um, to learn, especially when we're dealing with this thing with the COVID-19, where they made double sure that all the shops in this state and everywhere um, – pretty much take more precaution. Even though we've been doing that already, uh, a lot of us, in my opinion, have not been doing have not been doing it effectively and efficiently, which kind of hurts this industry. Um, I myself, you know, I always, I, I, the first thing I do when I come into a shop is I sanitize all my tools. If I haven't changed my barber side the day before, that gets changed in the morning because once, you start putting tools inside your barber inside inside your barber side, and you don't do the proper thing that you're supposed to do, which is to rent to get the hair out. Because once you get hair inside the barber inside the barber side, you you um, contaminate it, and we don't need contaminated barber side because we have too much hair. That barber side basically is just pink, is just not pink, just uh, blue water. Um, so well, yes, go right ahead. That's 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 just one of the things that I do. But like I said, having a license outside of that. It just shows that there's professionalism in this industry. As I said before, you don't want to go to a doctor's office or a dentist's office and not see a certificate of some kind or a license of some kind uh, that, that will put you at ease. Uh, well, what I love about Barbicide, and uh, we've had the ED, the education director, right here on our broadcast on the Hair Radio Morning Show. 
In fact, there's a podcast that's floating out there uh, on Spotify. If you go uh, and get your music on the streaming uh, source of Spotify on their platform, you'll find uh, just search Carrie Hines, and uh, my podcast will pop up. And you'll find uh, the uh, interview with Nurse Leslie from Barbicide. And she, when she was here, she talked to us about the shops reopening and what steps you need to take uh, to make sure that you are uh, you know, obeying proper sanitation guidelines. And what I love about this is that they have a certificate at Barbicide.com. So do check all that out where you can you know, pass a, a test. I took the test as well. It's hanging on my wall here, and you can print it out. It's really, really awesome. And they're just leading the charge with health and sanitation. And they, to me, they're the, the Bible of the industry. So I'm very, very pleased to hear you mention um, Barbicide and, and understanding all of that. So I have to say, Jeff, um, well, first of all, let me just remind everybody, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the all-new Hair Radio Morning Show. I'm Kerry Hines, and uh, today I have a very special guest who's actually, he's joining our lineup right here on the Hair Radio Morning Show. Uh, his name is Jeff Johnson. He's out of uh, kind of like the South Jersey area, and we're real happy to have him with us to uh, come on board. He's a barber, a licensed barber, and he's making some, some waves out there. Thank you, Jeff Johnson. Jeff, welcome to the show. Now, that's G-E-O-F-F. I just want to make that clear. Okay, that not the J E F F. No, that so, uh, is right. It's, it's the first time when I spell when I say someone when I tell someone my name. That's the first thing I do is give them the correct spelling. And also, I wanted just to go back, and that is a big thing. But I'm I'm a licensed cosmetologist that specializes. Oh, that's right. In- I got you. I got you. Okay, that does correct that. So you are a licensed cosmetologist who specializes in barbering. Is that correct? That's how you want to uh, state it. That is that is correct which is awesome because usually we don't uh, necessarily hear it that way, but that is awesome, and we uh, applaud you for that. And um, I think it's just, you know, as you were saying and describing your story earlier, I was thinking to myself as you were saying that you always wanted to do hair, and uh, you actually went through the, co- the whole cosmetology course, and I think you really appreciated that, where I had known a whole bunch of barbers who <laughs> went through Un, like unwillingly almost, so uh, I think it's really amazing because they they wanted to do the barbering. I do want to make that clear. It's not that they didn't want to do go to school. They loved school and loved the course, but they didn't necessarily you know feel that the whole course is what they wanted to do. But I think at the end of the day, I think it's awesome because it opens up a lot more avenues, in my personal opinion. So. I think it's great, Jeff. Uh, right. Jeff, I want to I switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about coming to the Hair Radio Morning Show. What are some of the topics you'd like to see spearheaded on this broadcast that you yourself well, will be bringing to your piece here? Oh, I, I definitely, and I'm definitely glad that you asked that. One of the things I want to bring to the show, um, again, really focus on the business side of barbering and, awesome. you know, it, 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 the business side, um, the financial side. Uh, of, of of being in this field. Again, going back to the pandemic and the shutdown um, of, of, of the of the jobs and people not being able to work, one of the things I really want to focus on as far as being a barber with your license is also, because you have a license, is also learning how to create or have create a business from your name, um, which would allow you to, if you ha- operated your business the right way, 
which would be another time that I would speak about, you would be have you would have been able to collect that additional uh, grant money that was given to a lot of the small businesses and also at the unemployment because there were a lot of barbers who did not receive the unemployment because they never filed taxes. You they know, don't have a license to file right. taxes. Uh, so, yes, go ahead, please. So, that's important. Okay. So, so with that, um, that is something that I really want to bring to the table. I need barbers to understand that paperwork is important. Ownership of your craft and of your name is very important, and it would also open up a lot of doors for you. Correct. And I'll tell you, and uh, on the flip side from uh, the filings of all of that, and the you know, um, I heard another uh, stylist, I think, on, on the radio show this morning actually talk about that as well. That's very important. Um, and to, to be registered, uh, you know, it is cash, and we are, are, we're still kind of essentially a cash-based business. But uh, let's remember to do that paperwork and, and make sure that you're registered. Um, very, very important. You, you know, like when this came out of the clear blue sky, no one knew that this was going to happen, but you would have been positioned to take advantage of a bunch of those monies that uh, they're pretty much throwing at everybody these days. Um, just be, um, for those who are able to take advantage, just read the, the small fine print, please. <laughs> okay, please. Yeah. Yeah, important, yeah. especially in our community. Uh, please read the fine print. And so that's all, you know, just to be aware on both sides of that uh, debate. Uh, listen, I have to say, Jeff, I'm really, really happy to have you on board with us. So this is going to be just awesome. Listen, um, any uh, is there anybody you want to shout out to this morning on the Hair Radio Morning Show? I definitely want to shout out to uh, Big Barber Van, who's the owner. Awesome. Of, uh, yeah, he's having the barbershop, 1135, definitely New Jersey. Uh, great guy, great owner. Fair guy, so that's one of the, that's definitely a barber that I'd love to shout out. Also, what, what's the name of that out. shop again? We're going to give them a little bit more of a plug today. What's the name of that shop and that owner? It is called the New Extravagant Multicultural Barbershop, eleven thirty-five, Deptford, New Jersey. All right, that is just awesome, and we want to shout out everybody in the uh, facility there and all the clients who come in there. Uh, so thank you so much, Jeff. I want to say uh, you're just going to be an awesome addition to the team. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, we welcome you. We have a whole uh, host of barbering that we're going to uh, get underway here at the show, and we will be paying attention to you uh, when you uh, launch your own broadcast right here uh, on the program. So we are looking forward to that. Now, that's going to happen uh, next month sometime, so we'll keep you guys informed uh, when that's going to happen. Just keep tuning in to the Hair Radio Morning Show. And, Jeff, in the meanwhile, we'll have you back uh, to take part in some of our panel discussions on barbering, joining uh, some of the folks uh, who are already on board with us, and uh, I think we're going to have a good lineup. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, likewise. All right. Well, folks, uh, thanks again, Jeff, for being with us. And Mr. Jeff Johnson, we uh, will have him back real soon. So, Thank you so much for being with us. And, folks, keep it right here. We've got a whole lot more of the Hair Radio. It's Kathy from the South Jersey area, and you're listening to the Hair Radio Morning Show. Hello, everybody. I'm Valerie from Validate Your Beauty. 
I am giving a shout out to the Hair Radio Morning Show, Carrie Hines. Just like the eyes are the window to the soul, the scalp is the window to beautiful and luxurious hair. The way to obtain it is with stimulating roots. Stimulating roots will exfoliate and detoxify your scalp, promoting healthy hair growth. Stimulating Roots has a system to detoxify and grow your hair. Their shampoo combines menthol, camphor, and pink grapefruit essential oil to improve blood circulation in the scalp. Their conditioner, that stimulates, moisturizes, and hydrates the hair. The Regeneration Oil, that contains essential oils that work together to promote hair growth while calming an itchy, dry, and irritated scalp. Open the window to beautiful and luxurious hair. Awaken the senses to your scalp with Stimulating Roots. This is available at StimulatingRoots.com. That's StimulatingRoots.com. But radio commercials as much as they do television commercials? Maybe more so. How do you figure that? Well, in television, your tube goes minutes just before the commercial comes on. Yeah? That serves as a warning device to millions of people that they have a split second to get out of the room. I never thought of that. In radio, an advertiser can just sort of sneak up on you without any warning. Uh-huh. I mean, you haven't noticed your car radio suddenly fading to black before the commercial, have you? And not recently, no. But can't you still walk out when the radio commercial comes on? Not at 60 miles an hour. Hmm. Okay, but do you think you can really make me pay attention to a radio commercial? I just did. Hey, who's your plug? You don't have one? Then you need us. Anything CBD, we can plug you in. Dispensaries, stores, smoke dens, we can plug you in. You need gummies, brownies, oils, we'll tell you where to get it. Any and everything you need, we'll plug you in. Check us out at plug420.com or download the app for free for all your CBD and We'll connect you to the best CBD and hemp businesses in your area. Plug420.com or download the app. Get plugged in. <laughs> hey, man. How'd you get your beard so long? I've been trying to grow for like three years, but I still got all these patches. Tell me your secret. And he said... Yeah, here. 
the therapy, the therapy. Yeah, here, your therapy, the therapy. Right here, therapy, that therapy. Right here. Ooh, let me grow a little. Ooh, let me grow some more. Ooh, I like the growth. Ooh, I like the growth. It's that therapy, your therapy. Right here, it's the therapy, the therapy. Yeah, here. It's the therapy, the therapy. Right here, it's the therapy, the therapy. Yeah, here. All right, uh, we're back live. It has been an extraordinary Friday. It's October 9th. We want you to, uh, October 9th of 2020, just want to be clear. Bower show number 498. I'm Carrie Hines. On Tuesday, we have an all-new broadcast. It'll be our next show. So again, tune in next Tuesday uh, for the next live broadcast of the All-New Hair Radio Morning Show. Uh, we've got a lot of big surprises. And then the very next day on Wednesday, on Wednesday of next week, we will actually air our 500th live broadcast, finally, of the all-new Hair Radio Morning Show. It's been an extraordinary five years since we launched this version of the broadcast. And we've got a lot of surprises in store. That's coming up next Wednesday. So uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we'll be on live all week. We've got some great new updates for you. Uh, lots of things are going on. And we're real grateful to have you a part of this journey. So this weekend, keep it special. Do something great. Treat yourself. Listen back to some of our amazing broadcasts this week, uh, which you can do so going over to stormradio247.com or simply download our Salon TV Network app and uh, take a moment uh, and listen into some of our shows. You'll really love it, and plus there's a whole lot of other things to do there. Um, we're going to go ahead and end out the week with one of our, uh, just a, a, one of our previous hit songs. It's just great to every so often just highlight some of the wonderful folks who've been on our show and also some of the songs and music that have kept us here. So uh, we'll see you back here next week. Make it a great weekend.